In this episode, I'm joined by Eric Jampa Anderson, a teacher of Tibetan medicine, astrology, and meditation, endorsed by luminaries of the field such as Dr. Nida Chenatsan and Lama Tsulchim Alione. Eric recounts how childhood tragedy and an early interest in the occult saw him deeply influenced by the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and to eventually become a Buddhist in the Nyingma lineage of Tibet. Eric reveals his personal journey in resolving friction points with the Buddhist religion, including doctrines of hell realms and heteronormative ethical standards. Eric also discusses his education in Tibetan medicine and shares his deep interest in and personal experience of the realm of spirits and unseen beings, both as mythic devices and also as influences in mental health and physical disease. So without further ado, Eric Jampa Anderson. Eric Jampa Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I'm very pleased to be talking with you today. And from what I understand, you are, at least for the time being, uh, locked down in London. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Slightly less locked down now, which is, uh, which is nice. But yeah, I'm, I'm here. I've <laughs> been here uh, nonstop for quite a while now. And it seems we'll be here for the foreseeable future. <laughs> but not so great to be stuck in a city, but I'm glad to be stuck in the UK if I had to be stuck anywhere. So Eric, you've been a Buddhist practitioner since the age of 14. I'm yeah, a bit, a bit earlier, actually. I, I started with um, Vipassana meditation and, you know, experimenting with the self-identification as a Buddhist uh, around 12, 13. Uh, and then I met my Lama when I was 14. So that was sort of my, my formal entry into Tibetan Buddhism. So I'm curious if you can tell us a bit about your childhood uh, before then, uh, the context in which you grew up. Um, how it was you uh, became a Buddhist, and uh, in particular, how it was that reading the story of Padmasambhava would come to affect your life so significantly. Right. So I, I had a, I was a very strange child. Uh, I'm a very strange adult, but I started as a very strange child, as most of us do. Um, and I was always very interested in sort of esoteric um, concepts and esoteric disciplines. Uh, my my parents were um, and still are sort of they're they're Christian, but when I was growing up, they weren't very. Um, you know, significantly Christian. It was more nominal. Uh, we went to church twice a year, but they never really forced anything down my throat. Um, I naturally was very interested in more sort of occult matters, which luckily, you know, my mother had a few books on the bookshelf about crystals or about, you know, talking to angels and, you know, those sorts of things that can act as a little bit of a, a gateway. And um, catching that inkling, I made very good use of my library card as a kid, uh, both my school library and the town library. And I've checked out a whole slew of books on, you know, occultism and, and witchcraft and fortune telling and I Ching and tarot uh, when I was around, you know, seven, eight years old. And I always had a nice, you know, hefty stack of these books on my, my desk in my room. And uh, I think by the time I was eight years old, I had set up a little fortune telling stand in our living room. I uh, had, you know, a little miniature crystal ball and a tarot deck and I would, you know, sort of do readings for people. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I took it seriously, but, you know, it wasn't something that sort of overwhelmed my life at that point. And I experienced when I was nine years old, uh, nine years old, 10 years old. No, I think I was eight years old when my brother passed away. My brother was killed. Uh, and that was my first real significant exposure to death. 
uh, it was something that was obviously really world shattering. He was my half brother and we didn't live together, but he was closest to me in age out of all of my half siblings. Uh, he was only 21 when he was murdered. And that was a really you know, jarring experience to go through. Uh, it was difficult on me personally, and it was really difficult on my mother and on my father. And really nothing at home was ever the same after that point. So I think that really shifted my my view of the world. It shifted my experience quite a bit to then really account for things like death, uh, which I had already been interested in. I was interested in ghosts and I was interested in, you know, communicating with spirits and, and things along those lines. But to really have a personal sort of level to that, a personal dimension to that was very new. Um, I think it was it was shortly after that time that my mother recommended to me that I read The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, she knew that, you know, I would probably find it interesting. And I think also I really needed something around that time to sort of go into and to use as a healthy form of sort of escape from what was otherwise, you know, somewhat traumatic circumstances. And that was really, I think, the that was the, the path for me. That was the beginning of the path. Uh, I read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And, you know, for people who haven't read those and have just seen the films, it may come off as like, oh, he read a really good sort of action fantasy book. Uh, but it was actually, uh, it was much more philosophically profound for me. It opened me up to this whole different way of viewing the world uh, in a much more animate and sort of sacred way. You know, even a forest or a stream or a, a big rock uh, or a tree could be something that had this sort of sanctity sanctity and this, you know, this gravity to it. And that's really, that informed my view of the world for quite a few years. Uh, I became really absorbed in not only those sort of stories, but also Tolkien's more fundamental mythologies found in like the Silmarillion and the Book of Lost Tales and so on. Uh, so that I think was inadvertently what led me to then seek something deeper in my more sort of authentic and earnest religious expression. I had a deep sense that I wanted to be religious. I was interested in religion. I was intrigued by it. Um, I ended up going to a Catholic school very briefly and had that little taste of, you know, Catholic ritual, which was very enticing and intriguing. Uh, but I also had a deep sense that I was not Christian. Uh, I had really no connection with the, the Christian myth, uh, no real connection with Jesus as a figure. It just didn't speak to me. Uh, and philosophically, I also found the idea of a single sort of, you know, mono God uh, who acts in this sort of dictatorial way over this, you know, exclusivist religious sphere uh, to be not something I could jive with very well. So I, I started exploring different religions, probably around 10, 11 years old, uh, looked into, you know, things like, you know, neo-paganism and Wicca, uh, but then also found Hinduism and, you know, explored a bit of Buddhism. And that was really when things started to click for me. Uh, it was a book on Zen meditation. That was my first book on Buddhism. And me and a friend of mine, actually, when I was in middle school, we were both sort of exploring this at the same time, partially in resistance to Christianity, because I was attending a Seventh-day Adventist school at this time. And I decided to become Buddhist. I was like, this is it. This is my philosophy. This is, you know, exactly how I want to, to live my life. And these are the kinds of practices I want to engage with. Uh, so I decided to begin identifying as Buddhist and start experimenting with meditation. And going to a local Vipassana center, receiving some sort of basic meditation instructions, learning about the story of the Buddha and so on, I, I really started to um, feel like this was 
home, that this was, you know, what I was looking for, but it wasn't quite it yet. And I remember one day a teacher, one of my Vipassana teachers mentioned Tibetan Buddhism, and uh, she was talking about some of the ritual atmosphere of Tibetan Buddhism, and in particular, actually, some of the spirit beliefs in Tibetan Buddhism and the relationship with unseen beings. And obviously, as a, as a young Tolkienist, I was really intrigued by that. And I decided to look into Tibetan Buddhism a bit more. And I got a few books. I remember one of them was The Lotus Born, translated by Erika Mukunzang, uh, which is the life story of Padmasambhava. Um, another was called Tibetan Buddhist Life by Don Farber, which was a, a, a photo book. Uh, it had just been published. It was sort of hot off the press, and it had descriptions of many different aspects of Tibetan Buddhist life and also incredible images. And I had those two books and I remember going through them and reading Padmasambhava's life story and just being completely captivated. You know, it felt like um, it, it approached the feeling that I got reading Tolkien's materials, but it had this weightiness and this philosophical depth um, and sanctity that really just sang to me. And the Tibetan Buddhist life book, the photo book gave me also some really good sort of tangible touch points to be able to see, you know, these different elements of Tibetan Buddhism. And I really gravitated to three pages in particular. There was one page uh, that was about the Nyingmapa sect and it had an image of some Nyingma um, Ngakpas practicing chut. And I remember seeing the chud practice and, you know, reading about it and reading about the Nyingma sect. And I was like, this is, this is home. This is, this is what I'm supposed to be. You know, this is it. And the other page that really struck, you know, stuck out to me was actually on Tibetan medicine. And I, I must've been 13, 14 years old at this point. Uh, but there was a, a page on Tibetan medicine with this amazing photograph of a medicine chest, you know, the old school wooden medicine chest with all of the drawers and uh, also a page from a Tibetan Materia Medica. And these things had a really you know, significant imprint on me, uh, or they awoke some sort of a latent imprint that, that I had within me. But I felt very strongly that these things are important. You know, These are things that I need to, to study more. And I, uh, <laughs> I, at some point, decided to announce to my parents and to my classmates that I was now a Nyingmapa. I was a practitioner of the Nyingma sect of Tibetan Buddhism. I'm a follower of Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche. Uh, and, you know, I had this whole sort of thing sorted out uh, by the time I was 13, but I didn't have a teacher. And the more I explored, the more I realized, oh, you really have to have a teacher. You need to find a guru. So I uh, started exploring a little bit and talking to people. And I remember going to this exposition in Durango, Colorado, which is where I'm from. Uh, and it was this sort of holistic expo with a bunch of you know, fortune tellers and crystal merchants and, and alternative healers and Reiki stands and all of this stuff. But there was one stand that had uh, Tibetan Buddhist ritual implements. And I started speaking to the shopkeeper there. His name was Vanessa. And I was asking her, you know, are you, are you Buddhist? And she was like, yes, are you, are you? I was like, yes. I was like, you know, what kind of Buddhism is this, is this center? And she was like, well, we're Tibetan Buddhist. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I know me too, but what kind of Tibetan Buddhist? And she said, oh, well, we're in the Nyingma tradition. And I was like, ah, <laughs> finally, you know, I found, I found uh, the Nyingma tradition. And I asked her, where's the center that you're connected with? And she said, it's in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, which was an hour away from where I lived. And it's called Tara Mandala. And as soon as I got home that night, I begged my parents, please let me go to Taramandala. Please let me go to Taramandala. They're Nyingma, they're just like me. You know, I'll be able to find a teacher there. 
And one day in, in September of 2005, uh, we decided to take an unannounced trip to this retreat center an hour and a half away from our home in the mountains uh, without any forewarning. We didn't call ahead or you know send an email or anything. We just showed up. And no one was on the land. There weren't any buildings, just a stone stupa and some yurts and a little construction site. And I just walked up to the first yurt that I could find and I knocked on the door and a woman appeared. And uh, she, I, I recognized her from the photos that I had seen from the center. Uh, but I introduced myself. I said, you know, hi, my name is Eric. I'm in Nyingmapa. And she said, oh, that's lovely. My name is Soltrim. And I was like, oh, you run this place, don't you? She's like, yeah. <laughs> and she invited me in. And we had this lovely conversation. She met my parents, talked to us for, you know, about an hour, uh, gave me a copy of her book, Women of Wisdom, and a little cassette uh, set on feeding your demons. And she basically told me to come back for instructions. And I, I asked her to be my teacher. She accepted. And that was that was the beginning of that. So I, you know, it took me a few years because I was still, you know, early teen. I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't have any real autonomy. I didn't have any money. Uh, there was very little that I could do for those first few years. But I always uh, sort of cultivated this sense that, you know, this is my guru, this is my teacher. And I tried to do any practices that she gave me very diligently. And eventually when I left high school and I had a lot more sort of mobility, uh, I ended up spending a lot of summers at Taramandala. I ended up working for Taramandala for quite a few years. And I'm still a you know, close student, I suppose. You know, Lama Sultram is very, we're, we have a very close relationship. Um, she's sort of my Lama mama and uh, she's been by my side ever since. Wow, that's fascinating, amazing. I'm curious when at that age, 12, 13, 14, what it was in looking back, of course, now, uh, being as you are very educated about uh, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, path and religion, at that point, what did you think it was about? What were the key, I suppose, pillars for you at that time uh, of what it meant to be a Tibetan Buddhist, both in theory and practice? So I, I was really drawn to the fact that it was a non-theistic religion. And this is something that I still really value in Tibetan Buddhism and in Buddhism, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, because you have so much dynamism in the manifestations of life, of enlightened beings. Um, you know, you have this whole pantheon of unseen beings that you relate to within the context of Tibetan Buddhism, but there's never an implication that any of those beings are omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent creator beings. That's completely absent from Buddhist philosophy. And I really, I mean, that was something that before anything else, I knew that I, that didn't work for me. Um, I, I had a lot of problems with the idea of the Christian God. Uh, I still have a lot of issues with the idea of the Christian God, but this was really present for me, especially being in Christian school. Uh, I remember I actually got expelled, or not expelled, I got suspended for a few days from school uh, because I had this little notebook of issues that I had with the Bible and with Christian theology, and I brought it up during religion class, and I made the pastor very upset, and I ended up getting suspended for that, which I still wear as a badge of honor <laughs> at this point in my life. Uh, but at that point, I was really trying to grapple with, you know, the the complexities of lived experience, you know, of a world that simultaneously is supposed to have this benevolent creator being, but which also has tremendous evil and a lack of justice and a lack of, you know, positive circumstances for so many people. So I, I really sensed that and I wanted something that would be completely different from that, that wasn't, you know, anywhere part of that worldview. 
uh, I was really drawn also to the concept of rebirth, which was, you know, I, I felt really strongly that I, you know, could sort of fit into that. You know, I felt, especially being someone who from a very young age with no prior experience with Buddhism, to feel so strongly about the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and this very specific lineage, very specific practice, which ended up being my, my primary practice, should. Uh, I, I felt really strongly that this must be a past life sort of, uh, you know, residual experience. So that was very prominent, the idea of karma and individual responsibility as opposed to sort of rote adherence to divine rules. Um, it had a very different sort of feeling. Uh, and this in the early days, I wasn't so entrenched or sort of enmeshed in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, it was a bit more like the Vipassana sort of approach, the modern sort of, you know, insight meditation society approach to Buddhism. So it was a lot more psychological. Uh, but still, you know, contains some of these essential core elements, which I related really strongly to, uh, especially this idea that, you know, we should, we should try to be good to other people for the sake of being good to other people and acknowledging their, uh, their intrinsic value, uh, as opposed to being good to other people, because God said that we should. And it really troubled me from a very early age that there was so much of a sense that humans wouldn't do the right thing if God didn't tell them to. And that really troubled me, you know, it troubled me that they would there would need to be a sort of you know divine decree not to kill someone else or not to harm someone else uh, to me that felt like it should be a little bit more of a self-directed uh, motive and buddhism gave that sort of space for that so i think those were some of the initial things also the the relationship with unseen beings uh like i said which didn't have this theistic sort of overlay but was still something that was relatable and um, enchanted to a certain degree, that really meant a lot to me. And I think, again, coming from the sort of, you know, the Tolkien foundation, the Tolkien background, uh, that was something that I needed my religious tradition to have. I needed to feel a connection with nature. I needed to feel a sense that nature was itself sacred, um, that it was mystical and enchanted, but I didn't need that to take the form of, you know, big granddaddy God in the sky created it for us. So that, that just felt really reductive, even at, you know, 12, 13 years old. That's very interesting. That could be, I think, construed as a somewhat uncharitable uh, reading of Christian ethics. Do you think perhaps um, uh, a similarly uncharitable reading of Buddhist ethics uh, could be applied Perhaps, for instance, the uh, as, as opposed to the big stick of um, final judgment, the big stick of, of right. karma, for example, do, do you see any possibility of a similarly uncharitable reading of uh, the Buddhist tradition? I could, I could to a certain degree, especially when you get into ideas of like the hell realms, uh, which is something that Buddhism may very well have been sort of the, you know, the, the pioneer of, you know, concepts of hell in the way that we now perceive of it are much, the earliest examples of that seem to be, you know, Buddhist sorts of teachings on hell, as opposed to anything in the Jewish or Christian traditions. Uh, so when you get to things like that, you know, it's, it, it can feel a little bit reductive. I think the, the uncharitableness of the Christian reading really also arose from the cultural environment that I was being brought up in, in America. Um, American Protestant Christianity is phenomenally different from European, any European form of Christianity, reasonably speaking, but especially, you know, like the Catholic tradition. Um, and modern Christianity is also very different from early Christianity. And it's evolved countless times over the, you know, the centuries in order to accommodate various political motives. Uh, same thing could be said about Buddhism to a degree, but I, I think the fundamental lack of 
of a divine judge who is setting the rules and then, uh, you know, sort of determining whether you adhere to those rules and then punishing you accordingly. The cruelty of that and the, the total sort of lunacy of that to my young mind and also to my adult mind, um, for me, just completely discounted it as a possibility. Uh, the idea that it's a natural sequence of cause and effect, also having stories like, you know, Kshiti Garba, Bodhisattva, who willfully goes into the hell realms in order to liberate beings there. Uh, I find that sort of a mentality to be really incredible. And obviously, you also have that in like the Catholic tradition with certain saints who make the same decision. Uh, but that's very much not present in modern American Protestantism. Uh, it's a very different sort of environment. Also with like the relationship with the natural world, you know, I think we sort of, um, we implicitly sort of uh, assume that Christianity is at the root of this and that Christian theology and the idea, you know, Judeo-Christian Abrahamic sort of theology with this idea of the Garden of Eden being given to man and that man is, you know, in, in a place of dominion in a position of dominion over the natural world. Uh, it's actually not so clear cut in early Christian sources and early, you know, sort of approaches to this um, were a bit more ecologically minded than they are now. But in America, there's a very, very strong sense that, you know, humans are all that matter. You can destroy anything and everything because it's ultimately a resource for us to exploit. Animals have no souls. They might not have any feelings. They might not have any, you know, sense of self or, or you know, subjective experience. They're basically just these sort of, you know, um, mechanical beings that we can eat. Uh, all of that stuff is really sort of modern American Christianity more than anything else. It's not a part of the, the real roots of the religious tradition. That's very interesting. And you're talking there, of course, about the range of Christian uh, thought, I suppose, or maybe lack of thought, <laughs> maybe, uh, from uh, you know throughout, of course, the span of of the religious history of Christianity, as well as its, um, I suppose, anthropological expression. We put it that way. In other words, how it's actually practiced and believed by people around around the world, such as America, as you say. I'm curious if uh, in uh, that journey, we, we've been talking about how you viewed Buddhism at 13, 14. I'm curious, as you then became more uh, educated about it, and as you met many more Buddhists and traveled to uh, countries where Buddhism is widely practiced and uh, more culturally embedded and so on, uh, presumably you would have encountered uh, a similar range of uh, beliefs and ideas and so on, where in some cases, presumably the views um, operationally of Buddhists in certain contexts would differ from, say, the richness of the philosophical tradition, uh, maybe in interesting ways, maybe in uh, unfavorable ways, as, as you've been talking about with Christianity. I'm curious if you ever uh, had any friction points in your uh, development as an uh, intellectual in the Buddhist tradition or as a practitioner, and also meeting Buddhists. Were there any uh, friction points or um, interesting uh, revelations um, or circles you had to square and so on and so forth in your own personal journey along these sorts of lines? Uh, no, uh, of, of course. Um, it's, it's my very, you know, it's my conviction that in Buddhism, there should not be a requirement to experience cognitive dissonance and to sustain that. I think, you know, because it's a system of inquiry, as well as being a religion, as well as being a psychology, as well as being a philosophy, as well as being medicine, as well as being a science, you know, it's all of these many, many, many things. Uh, but it is a, a system of inquiry. That is one of its many sort of identities and, and orientations. And I think because of that, you should never have to be 
um, stuck in this place of cognitive dissonance. It's different from having an open question or having an unanswerable question and sitting in that space of uncertainty, which is quite powerful. But uh, you know, I, I always wanted to rid myself of cognitive dissonance. You know, I needed to feel that whatever I believe uh, is something that's rooted in reality and in rationality, even if it doesn't necessarily align with mainstream ideology. You know, I still needed to be able to rationalize it for myself in a really rigorous sort of way. Um, and of course, there are so many components of you know Buddhism and especially Tibetan Buddhism, where once you pick apart at the history and the underlying you know the underbelly of these sorts of ideas, you start to realize that yes, a vast vast majority of it, or you know not a majority. Yes, a majority. The vast majority of it was not written or spoken by the historical Buddha. These are things that you know were developed over time that came from many different traditions, many different cultural uh, contexts, and they helped to form these various varieties of, of Buddhism as we have it today. Uh, I definitely struggle with the really sort of, you know, exhausting forms of sectarianism that you still find, uh, especially with Western Buddhist adherents. I find this to be in some places even more prominent with Western Buddhists than with Asian Buddhists. Uh, it, it just arises from our own cultural context where religion is an exclusivist sort of experience. You belong to the in-group with your other in-group people who know the truth and everyone else is excluded, everyone else is wrong. And I find that sort of mentality, you know, even in, in Buddhism, you find it in Vajrayana speaking about, you know, the Hinayana, the lower vehicle, uh, or the Mahayana denigrating the lower vehicle. And, you know, this is very prominent. You find this and it ends up being a sort of cultural divide and this, uh, you know, us versus them mentality. But I think in its modern context, Buddhist, the Buddhist countries that I've spent time in have always been a lot more accommodating to various forms of, of Buddhism and also various forms of religious identity. I've not spent time in in Burma, in Myanmar. I haven't, you know, I haven't been in some of those sorts of environments where obviously Buddhism is not acting as a force for good and sort of inclusion, but as an exclusive force. Uh, but in places like Nepal, uh, you know, you have a much more syncretic mix of a lot of different people, sometimes themselves identifying as, you know, both Hindu or Shaivist or Buddhist all at once. Um, you know, people that might identify as shamans and Buddhists or people who just identify as shamans who deal with Buddhist deities, but they don't identify as Buddhist. There's many different manifestations. And I think there tends to be a little bit more um, camaraderie and sort of, you know, this metropolitan attitude toward it, toward it. And I think this is what a lot of people find when they go to India as well, um, is that the idea of Hinduism is itself so inclusive. You know, there's so many different varieties of expression, philosophical beliefs, beliefs in gods, uh, you know, religious practices and, and vows and so on that all fall into this umbrella. Obviously, you still have exclusion of non-Hindus, of Muslims in particular, but, uh, you know, I think it has a different sort of energy than what we have in the West. Uh, I think another thing that I really struggled with was as a queer man, as a gay man, uh, I had to really grapple with that quite early on. Uh, I think the seeds of that were some of what caused my aversion to Christianity in the first place, knowing that there was something deep within me that was antithetical to what they were telling me. And because my lived experience was lived experience and could give me you know, affirmative proof of at least the fact that being gay was not a conscious choice that I was making, then I knew that Christianity was, was incorrect on at least that and probably on many other things. With Buddhism, I also had to go through that process because if you read the old texts, if you read the Vinaya, uh, if you read you know, Tibetan commentaries on sexual ethics, you quickly discover that homosexuality is not welcome uh, in the Buddhist ordained Sangha and that it's also considered to be a sexual um, 
um, an act of sexual misconduct. So I really, that took some time. Uh, and, you know, I eventually was able to make my way through it, but it took, you know, exposure to the Tibetan medical tradition. It took having really great teachers. It took having a deeper understanding of Tantra, uh, especially Buddhist Tantra, to really be able to grapple with it and, you know, integrate my sexuality into my religious identity, which was always much more central. Hmm. That's very interesting indeed. Would you be willing to talk in a little bit more depth about that particular aspect? Is that something that's uh, interesting or relevant? Um, yeah. I think, as you say, in the uh, religion, as it sort of comes out of the box, if you like, a non-heteronormative uh, sexual expression, for example, I think one has to do quite a degree of mental and scholarly gymnastics to square that circle, that the tradition really quite right. explicitly rejects it. Can you talk a, a little bit more about the details of that? Of course, often it's discussed that uh, in Tantra, the image of the Yabyum, the male-female, that sort of archetypal duality or coming right. together, which is also implied in the subtle anatomy and in various other aspects, of course, naturally filters out through, through, through the culture and the religion. Um, th there's, there's talk about that, uh, but also on moral grounds, on karmic grounds, on energetic grounds, on, you know, what happens to the country you're living in if, if, if you engage in such behaviors like that. I mean, there's a lot of that sort of thing. So I'm curious, yeah. how, how did you navigate uh, that what must presumably still be an ongoing tension with the tradition? Right. So it's, it's interesting. Um, one thing is, you know, I think it's important for us to always remember that religions don't come out of the box. Um, that's, that's not how religions sort of operate and how they evolve. Uh, there is no singular Christianity. There is no singular Buddhism. There is no singular Hinduism, obviously. Uh, you know, the, these things aren't, you know, individual um, sort of monoliths. You know, they, they exist in uh, sort of communication and engagement with the cultures in which they exist and also other cultures that they, that they interact with. So I think it's important for us to especially identify that, you know, Buddhism fundamentally is quite different from the Abrahamic traditions because the Abrahamic traditions have a set uh, sort of collection of fundamental dogmatic texts. They're pithy uh, for the most part. Obviously, you have more extensive literature in, in Judaism and Islam, uh, but not so much in Christianity. It's, it's very essentialized and it's very formalized as dogma that must be believed and adhered to in order to attain salvation. You have one shot, so you got to do it. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell for eternity we ought to uh, emphasize perhaps eric that 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 is a very specific slice of christianity that you're and really ignores the majority of christian thought and practice throughout the centuries but i i i but, it, that, but that's exactly what i'm what i'm saying as far as we can't treat any of these as a sort of monolithic entity that they do they grow and, and evolve over time and including and especially christianity uh and also judaism and islam and every other world religion these are things that are living living sort of uh you know systems to a certain degree but buddhism does have a much richer tradition of ongoing sort of uh revelation and development that can then be formalized as canon than you have in the Christian tradition, for instance, you have things like the Book of Mormon, but that's widely considered to be, uh, you know, sort of a cult by non-Mormon Christians. Uh, some people are more sympathetic to it, but in general, these sort of, you know, further revelations are always viewed with a lot of uh, skepticism. Whereas in Buddhism, you have this grand movement of the Mahayana, you have the tantric developments, you have the Terma tradition in Tibet, uh, which allow for a lot more sort of living, breathing flexibility and adaptation for the current time. So, you know, as a part of that, you also have of, you know, commentary 
familial traditions which shift over time, the same that you have in any religion. Uh, but the modern sort of figureheads and holders of the tradition are left with a lot more responsibility to understand things and adapt things based on their own lived experience and the best sort of science that we have available to us. Uh, this is how we can get His Holiness the Dalai Lama sort of explaining that, you know, we should be following a sort of model that looks at the Big Bang as the origin of this universe system, looking within the framework of quantum physics for, you know, a sort of understanding and, uh, um, yeah, context for, for theories of emptiness and so on. So, I, you know, I think that the, the Buddhist tradition allows for this sort of constant growth and evolution in a way that is a little bit um, more ingrained and endorsed than you find in Christianity. Um, I definitely, I, I don't attempt to speak for all Christians by any means, but when you get to the, the sort of foundations of Christian doctrine, especially as it's practiced in places like America, which tend to be a lot more literalist, uh, they tend to take things as being, you know, historical truths that if rejected and ignored lead to damnation. Uh, and this is what I was told repeatedly growing up. Uh, you know, I mean, I going to a Christian school, which was a fair progressive. I mean, it's Seventh-day Adventists, which are relatively progressive. Uh, they're vegetarians, for instance, uh, but still got a lot of this, uh, you know, that fundamentally there was nothing that I could do to avoid eternal damnation unless I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior under one omniscient and omnibenevolent and omnipotent God. So that fundamental idea is just very different from the sort of religious orientation of Buddhism. Uh, it's based on a very different premise. It, in, it you know, requires very different sorts of engagements and it has a very different result. But as for the, the gay thing, <laughs> as for the gay thing, um, that being said, uh, you know, it's very difficult to just take Buddhism out of the box and say this is what the Buddha intended. There are people who are trying to do this and return to sort of the EBT, like, you know, early Buddhist traditions and what was originally intended. But I do find that to be a little bit of a dead end and not necessarily the most useful approach to things. If you want to get an essentialized form of what, you know, Siddhartha Gautama taught 2,500 years ago, then that's fine. But it doesn't give you the full breadth of what Buddhism actually constitutes in the 21st century or what it developed uh, over the course of the past 2,500 years. So the, the gay thing for me, you know, I, um, as a rule, do not take the, the advice of monks as being reasonable guidelines for lay sexual behaviors. Um, I also found it very strange that, you know, there were more discussions about the ethics of sex in relation to the orifices used, as opposed to whether consent is present, uh, whether rape or molestation are engaged with sexually, which are much cleaner definitions of sexual misconduct and, you know, really negative karmic uh, activities, as opposed to using a different orifice than what straight people use. Uh, so that sort of incongruence, um, you know, that, um, that dissonance was something I, I had to work through. I was very lucky to have Lama Sultram as my, my root guru, because as a female guru, as a female Lama, um, and as someone who really dedicated herself to an understanding and uh, sort of exploration of the feminine in Buddhism, she automatically, you know, sort of flipped some of the patriarchy on its head for me. Uh, she was able to get to some of the more feminist roots of Buddhism, looking at the integration of the feminine and even the earliest stories of the Buddha, but then her 
you know, gradual reemergence in the Mahayana as Pragnaparamita, and then again in Tantra as these more sort of dynamic embodiments of the Dakini. So that gave me the, the fuel, I think, to say, okay, so maybe the sort of patriarchal heteronormative model is not the absolute truth. Maybe there's more beneath this, and it's actually been shaded by cultural bias over time and prejudice, which it does seem to have, have certainly been the case. Um, once you get into, you know, Tantra, you definitely find this archetypal balance between Yab and Yum, the masculine and feminine. But I think an important distinction between Buddhist Tantra versus non-Buddhist or Hindu Tantra uh, is that the non-dual state, the non-dual basis of it, isn't just the coming together of two polar opposites. It's actually recognizing the intrinsic uh, non-duality of those various expressions to begin with. So the basis is non-dual and in a more authentic sense, as opposed to just being a, a, an idea of union. Uh, and even the way that like Dr. Nita uh, teaches Karma Mudra, you know, the actual sex, sexual union practice, uh, he very much decentralizes the archetypal performance of a man and woman coming together to produce this sort of, you know, profound moment. Um, I think partially recognizing that every human being on the planet came from that union and very few of those people attained enlightenment uh, in that moment of union. So, you know, that performance of that archetype itself isn't really the point. It's working with the experience of bliss and desire within the body and within the space of the mind. So for that, you have to be much more authentic with who you are, with your own needs and your own desires and your own orientation. Um, so there, there was that level. Also, Tibetan medicine really affected my, my understanding of the queer experience in, uh, you know, according to Tibetan Buddhism. And the, the Four Tantras specifically states that, you know, beings can be born uh, in, within one of three classifications, one of three genders, if you will. One is Po, one is Mo, and one is Maning. So male, female, and Maning. This Maning is literally sort of like non-classified. That would be the closest thing, I think, to a, a literal translation, but it's usually translated as neutral, um, sometimes as intersex, which is one variety of Maning, but it's not all of the Maning experiences. And some of the commentaries actually break that, that category, that third, uh, you know, other gender into five or, you know, various number of different uh, subcategories. And those include things like, you know, the intersex experience or those that have, you know, neither male nor female genitalia. Um, those that change genders or sexes throughout their life, um, also those that experience sexual fulfillment through same-sex encounters, so homosexuals, uh, all of these are classified as maning. And the, the original texts and commentaries are a little bit obsessed with physical characteristics, which I think is actually a mistake, uh, because if you take away the strictly physical manifestation of it, then you have those that identify with both genders, those that identify with neither genders, those that change their experience of gender, there's the Yurwa that shifts or transitions during their life. So basically, a, you know, sort of a trans experience, uh, not to say that they experience a change, but that it's trans, it's a trans, a transitional sort of experience over the course of your life. Um, and then homosexuality. So all of these are found within this, uh, this bracket of Maning. And the text very clearly states the origin of this, which isn't past life misdeeds. It's not bad karma on the part of the parents. It's not disease or, you know, disorder. 
it's actually just the perfectly equal balance of the father's essence and the mother's essence at the moment of conception. Uh, so that to me was, was really profound. It's like, okay, so my experience can be explained here without going into any sort of moralizing, without going into any form of, you know, demonization and vilification and just accept that it's actually a natural manifestation based on the circumstances at the moment of conception. And I think it's also notable that this paradigm of Po, Mo, and Maning, father, you know, or male, female, and, and uh, non-gendered, uh, this does appear in other places in the Yushi as well, including the section on pulse analysis. But when it talks about the, the different pulses, the male, female, and neutral pulse, they replace the word Maning with uh, Changchup Sempa, with Bodhisattva. Uh, so this is actually described as being this very sort of even, very, you know, gentle uh, Bodhisattva's pulse. And it's described as the, you know, Maning Bodhisattva pulse. This is, you know, how it's mentioned in, in commentarial literature. So this, you know, even though Yutok isn't saying that all gay people are, are bodhisattvas or that all queer people are bodhisattvas, but I think any instance of the queer experience being described with enlightened sort of language, with, you know, sacred sort of language as opposed to vilifying language is a really, you know, notable anomaly and something that's, you know, worthy of uh, some degree of exploration. Um, I also feel very strongly that the queer experience, especially in the 21st century, but really throughout time, um, has always been an experience of being out of step and in the fringe of society, even within your own family. You know, very few queer, queer people are born into queer families. Uh, you know, my parents are both straight, all of my siblings are straight and, and cisgender. So it's one of the few experiences where even if you're born into your biological family, you can still be an outsider. And it forces you to then step outside of your own comfort, comfort zone, to question the norms of the society that you're brought up in, uh, to question the philosophical and ontological sorts of lenses that are being used by your, your social um, you know, environment. And you have to seek the truth out yourself. It's a necessity to do that. In order to be a fully formed human, in order to feel comfortable in your own experience, you have to do that. So I do consider the queer experience to be a kind of blessing. Um, you know, I think the the idea of queer liberation is actually very beautiful, and I think it has a lot of depth to it. It was certainly a part of my experience. Can you say a bit more about that term, queer liberation? Yeah, I mean, we, we speak a lot about like gay liberation, queer liberation, as in, um, you know, experiencing liberation as a queer community where we can fully be embodied in our, our queer selves. We can, you know, hold hands and make out with our husbands on the street without any fear of being attacked or criticized or ridiculed. Um, and to really allow for a full uh, societal sort of endorsement of, of queer experiences is something that's entirely natural and no better or, or uh, worse than the straight and cisgender experience. Uh, but I think the idea, you know, if we, if we go a bit deeper with it, the idea of liberation itself uh, is obviously very profound and central to the Buddhist ideology uh, and the Buddhist path. And I think it does um, speak to this thing that happens in your, your mind when you're a queer person. Once you break free of those chains, uh, once you fully have, you know, sort of taken your seat as a queer person and no longer have to apologize for it or lie about it or hide it or sort of sidestep your way around it, uh, I think there's a profound sense of liberation that comes with that. And it opens a lot of doors. Uh, it opens creative doors. It opens spiritual doors. It opens, um, you know, existential, uh, you know, realizations about 
about the nature of humanity. Uh, and I think in a really, you know, in a perfect sense, if you take away some of the trauma that some queer people experience and carry with them throughout their lives, uh, it should also foster a greater sense of empathy and compassion for those that we don't understand. Because we know what it's like to be fundamentally misunderstood even by your closest, you know, brethren, your closest kin. Uh, you can be, you know, excommunicated from your family and you know tossed out on the street and that forces you to then have a very different approach when you're interacting with people that are not like you uh, whether they're people of color if you're a white person uh, or if they're you know people from another another place if they're immigrants if you're you know native to the land that you're living in uh, people from a different social class people with you know different kinds of abilities or disabilities uh, you just have to relate to it in a different way not everyone does but that's because of trauma it's not because of queerness yeah, amazing. You're talking there about this uh, queer liberation can open many doors uh, creatively. For, you mentioned uh, spiritually and so on, all these ways. Could you talk a little bit about that process for you and what sort of, uh, if you're willing, and what sort of doors it opened um, for you creatively and in particular in your own personal spiritual life, which is in a certain sense the subject of uh, the focus of our conversation? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to get too bogged down by the, the queer stuff, but it is Pride Month. So it is good that we're talking about a little bit of this. Um, the reason I'm asking you, uh, Eric, is it's very, it is very interesting. Yeah, and, right. Um, and uh, very fundamental. And uh, you have, you're very articulate on the subject. And it's not something that is discussed um, in, in long form sense, uh, very often, I don't think, at least not in the mainstream. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't think it is the no, case. Oh, you're totally right. Honest, yeah. No, you're totally right. And you know, the, the thing that I found to be really painful about it is that queer people of, of all of the sort of marginalized communities, I think we are the most marginalized by religious institutions. Um, I might eat those words by realizing that there's, you know, other people who are more marginalized, but it's really, you know, we've, we've been the, you know, um, based in misogyny, queer people have been the sort of subjects of a massive amount of, um, you know, scrutiny and disenfranchisement and marginalization by religion over time. And I think it's really, um, as someone who experienced a lot of the classic traumas of coming up as queer in a straight society, I needed something. I needed something spiritually fulfilling, existentially fulfilling. I needed the sense of community and of meaning and belonging uh, and, you know, spiritual sort of more fundamental existential meaning that you get through these sorts of, uh, you know, communities and, and environments. And so, so infrequently are religious environments openly welcoming to queer people. You know, the most that we can expect is an acceptance or a tolerance for the queer experience. Um, you know, if I was to, you know, I, I have friends who are queer and, and also, um, you know, strongly Christian and they find their own paths through that. You know, they find their way of, of either, um, you know, identifying that being gay was never a major sin in, in, you know, sort of the original textual traditions, that this wasn't something that Jesus cared enough about to talk about, uh, you know, that they don't feel there's any dissonance. Other people just accept that they were wrong on this. Um, but I think most troublingly, I've, I've heard people speak about, you know, it's okay if you're gay and Christian because God accepts all 
all sins. You know, he'll forgive you for all of your sins. And that just was never going to fly for me. Uh, it was the same with Buddhism. You know, it's like, I'm not going to accept that, oh, well, you know, it's bad karma, but everyone develops bad karma and it'll just lead to a certain kind of rebirth. Um, I've been told that I'm going to go to a specific hell uh, where there's beautiful men floating by in the river and I'll want to go after all of them, but then I get swept up in the river. Uh, I was told this, uh, a, a Tibetan Lama. <laughs> I, won't, I won't use any names, but I mean, there, you know, these, there are very, what I think are very silly and sort of, you know, mythic justifications for bias and prejudice and fear of the other, uh, which have led to these sorts of ideas, but they aren't essential to the philosophical core of the tradition. Um, I forgot what I was, what track I was on with. Well, that. I can, I can uh, nudge you back on it, perhaps. You were talking about, uh, or I was asking about um, doors that the liberation yeah. aspect um, has opened for you. I mean, I don't think it's any mistake or any coincidence that so many of the incredible artistic and even scientific uh, contributions in throughout human history, even political conquests, Alexander the Great, for instance, uh, were queer people. You know, the, it's there's I think a correlation between the queer experience and creativity to a certain degree. That's not to say that every queer person is expected to be, you know, a creative type or an artist or something because some aren't. But I think it naturally it it causes your brain and your mind to become a little bit more pliable and flexible to different experiences and ways of looking at things. And that is a tool that we all really need. You know, whether it manifests as queer sorts of behaviors like playing with gender or sexuality or something or uh, engaging in a same sex relationship or, or something along those lines. Um, just having this sort of queer orientation, having this openness to things that are unfamiliar, uh, and trying actively to see the world through a lens that's other than what's been what's been inherited by your, your sort of host culture. Uh, I think that is a really powerful experience to have. And, you know, I think anyone, especially who leaves their sort of, you know, religion of origin to go into a dharmic path or a more sort of, you know, serious spiritual path, I think we all have those sorts of wake up moments where you just realize um, that there's more out there and that there's more than this little bubble that we've been brought up in. And we need to bust that open and expand uh, if we really want to attain liberation. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for talking in such depth about that. I do think that's so interesting what you're saying. And uh, as I said, not discussed uh, in sufficient, uh, given sufficient airtime, I think. You know, the, the con conversations surrounding sexuality and Buddhism are a long time coming, you know, uh, under uh, sort of emphasized for a very long time. The majority of Western Buddhists are non-monastic. The more, majority of us are having sex. I would, you know, even the majority of Buddhists in the world are, are non-monastic. So it's really bizarre that we've created this sort of energy around, uh, surrounding sexuality that is so monastic and puritanical in orientation uh, that allows for very little nuance, I think. But I, I find, you know, have you, have you ever found yourself in a situation, you know, in maybe a refuge ceremony when someone's talking about the five precepts where they've described sexual misconduct as rape or molestation? Sometimes I have heard people, uh, Buddhists, discuss the precept to do with sexual conduct as uh, refraining from sexual harm. Have I ever heard someone use the words rape and molestation? Um, no, You're but I have had, I've heard, have heard people say um, refraining from sexual harm. And then yeah, yeah. people have said, that's the point is don't hurt someone with your sexuality. I have heard people say that. Yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. But um, 
very infrequently. And most of the time when, when I've seen people teach on, you know, the five precepts and the sexual misconduct precept, it's, I've more frequently encountered, um, topics surrounding, uh, like monogamy and really? not transgressing the boundaries of a relationship than I have, uh, identifying, you know, consent and avoiding sexual abuse. And I think that that's something that we really have to grapple with as a, a religious community is that we're dealing simultaneously with really intense issues surrounding sexual ethics and people in positions of ultimate authority, ultimate spiritual authority, exerting that authority in order to attain sexual gratification, uh, from students who are sometimes, uh, you know, monastic or who are otherwise unable to make a conscious decision to enter into a sexual relationship with their ultimate spiritual guide. So I think it's it's messy that we have that and we also have a, a sort of uneasiness uh, in discussing what actually sexual misconduct constitutes. Uh, you know, what is it? What, you know, if you're going to cause harm through sexuality, it's, uh, you know, there's many ways that that happens every single day uh, in all of our communities across the world, including in monasteries. Uh, and yet there's very little conversation about what that actually looks like and how to avoid that. Mm. Yeah, it's a tricky area. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, the, the queer conversation, which is good, but I don't want to I don't want to get too bogged down with it. No, quite right. So I'm curious. What was it about Padmasambhava that got you? Uh, and then I'd also uh, be interested if you could talk going beyond this point, you know, coming involved in Tara Mandala and studying with Lama Sutra Malioni. Uh, and then, of course, you went on to study at Naropa University and, and then went on to what I think most people will know you professionally for, which is your medical expertise in terms of Tibetan medicine and uh, also your um, uh, expertise in astrology of various different cultures. So could you uh, continue the narrative? And maybe you also okay. mentioned something about Padmasambhava. What, what, what was it about him that you thought was so cool? <laughs> Oh God! I mean, what isn't cool about Padmasambhava? He, you know, for a for a thirteen year old who had just come off of you know all of Tolkien's works, you know, he gave there was the magical dimension to it. There was a mythical dimension to it, which was so juicy. Um, you know, I, I remember being absolutely awestricken by you know the story with him and Mandarava, and you know having them uh, having him set on the pyre, and then goes up in flames, and then he transforms it into Tsopema into the lake. Uh, and I mean, I took this all to be very, I took it in earnest uh, at that age. I, you know, as an adult and as someone who's a bit more historically minded, I'm very conscientious of the fact that the Padmasambhava mythos are is partially, you know, legendary. Uh, and I'm quite comfortable with that. Uh, but when I was younger, it was really, you know, that there was this whole this religious tradition and mythic tradition, which was living and dynamic and which didn't have all of the trappings that I saw in the, the Western religious traditions that I didn't feel a connection to. Uh, and because I had a basic idea of the sort of Buddhist philosophy underpinning it, I found it to be very profound. Uh, but I really think, you know, the, a, a story and the power of myth is really quite remarkable. Um, myth is how we actually process information in a relatable way as, human, as humans. Uh, it's how we process things really, you know, to use sort of flowery language, it's, you know, where we process things in our hearts as opposed to in our brains. You know, we can take in information and we can try to assemble it in our brains. And for some people that's easier than for others. But if you have a myth, if you have a story to be able to really sink your teeth into and to allow yourself to sort of be infused by, then it naturally adjusts our sort of lens of, of you know, reality in such a way that we can very easily assimilate new information based on how it fits into that mythic paradigm. Uh, I I think this is a really important element of 
everything, <laughs> but you know, certainly today, everything that we that we have, everything that we live by in modern society is founded upon myths. Every national story, every cultural identity, every religion, every uh, you know, economics, the the entire economic and financial sort of institutions, uh, these are fundamentally uh, really sort of um, held together by myth. And for me, the Padmasambhava myth was really, that was a central one. You know, that was something that adjusted my worldview in such a way um, that I feel like I was somehow able to process a lot at once. Uh, and I was able to understand, you know, much more sort of nuanced details of uh, Tibetan Buddhism in particular. And that's really its purpose. That's a big part of its purpose. It sets the charter myth of Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhism. It explains, you know, how it arose in a mythic legendary sort of fashion. Uh, but it provides a lot of motivation for inspiration. And that's something that you just can't do through, you know, facts and figures alone, uh, which is, I also think, a major part of why we're where we're at, where, why we are where we're at as a species in the 21st century. Uh, we've abandoned the vast majority of our natural myths. Uh, we've abandoned the myths that tie us to the rest of phenomenal existence and the rest of our planet. Uh, and we've replaced them with these very, you know, sort of anthropocentric, pseudo-humanistic myths, uh, which are usually then subdivided into nationalism and, you know, sort of ethnocentricity. Uh, but that's something that is just part of the power of myth. So for me, the Padmasambhava myth was, you know, that's what brought me into the world uh, in a very sort of experiential way. And it affected me for a long time. Still, still affects me. <laughs> I'm still in Nyingma. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. So could you continue the narrative a little bit into your time at Naropa and then your education in uh, Tibetan medicine? Yeah, so I mean, I was, a, I was an actor uh, throughout my high school career, I suppose. I, I spent every summer as a, um, an actor in Summerstock Theater, and that was my professional sort of life. And I was sure that that was my future. I was going to be a musical theater actor. Um, when I left high school, I went to the Boston Conservatory for a year, which is a musical theater school in Boston, um, very competitive, and it was sort of quite an honor to be accepted to go into the program. But right before, the summer before I went to Boston Conservatory, I spent uh, three months, four months at Taramandala. Uh, and at the very end of this three-month stint, of, you know, like sleeping in a tent and, you know, working in the temple every day and attending teachings and learning rituals and learning practices and, you know, deepening my own meditation practice. Uh, at the very end, we had this 10-day Chen, which is a, a great accomplishment ceremony, which is, you know, sort of the most uh, complex ritual in Vajrayana because it's sort of 24-7 practice for about 10 days, uh, has many, many, many different moving parts, and you have a bunch of people coming together to accomplish uh, a sadhana practice together. And I went straight from that the final morning. We woke up at 3 a.m., spent like seven, eight hours in puja. Uh, you know, we had a big feast offering. We finished the whole day, do five fire pujas simultaneously. It was a whole spectacle. And I left immediately from that to get on a red-eye flight to start musical theater school the next day in Boston. And I, I was not ready for that. It was not a good idea. Uh, I was totally, uh, I felt very alienated. I felt very outside of uh, what was going on there. Um, I missed the first week of orientation. So people had already formed their little cliques and friend groups. And I came in as the guy who was at a Buddhist retreat uh, and had to miss orientation for that. So I, I was really singled out quite quickly. And I also realized over the course of that year that I just didn't, I couldn't do anything with my life uh, that was not centered 
around my my spiritual identity and around Tibetan studies. So I decided to leave that school and go to Naropa University, uh, which was a shock for my parents and for my teachers and my mentors and my directors and everyone that I had ever worked with. Uh, but they also knew that this was a very important part of my life. So I went to Naropa. Um, I spent a year there doing religious studies, Tibetan language, um, a bit of Chinese medicine, actually, a bit of Buddhist psychiatry, psychology, rather. Uh, so that was, you know, all a part of my, my year at Naropa. But then by the end of that, <laughs> I was starting to realize that I wasn't getting on very well with the Shambhala sort of institution. Uh, it didn't feel very comfortable to me and I had a lot of problems with the atmosphere surrounding Trungpa. Uh, and I just, I wasn't really feeling the, the academic vibe there either. It wasn't going deep enough into Tibetan studies and really sort of, you know, the Tibetan sciences. Rather, it was a very modern sort of postmodern 21st century look at it and a restructuring of it, especially to fit sort of the Shambhala model. So I got really sick during this time and I went to see a Tibetan doctor in Boulder, uh, Dr. Nishala Gwininda, and she um, changed my life. She made me well within, uh, you know, a couple of weeks from, you know, this gastrointestinal sorts of issues that I had been dealing with for months. Uh, I had gone to multiple doctors. I felt like nothing was going to, to fix it, but I was really unwell. And she got me back to not only a, a healthy baseline, but I felt better than I had in many, many years. Uh, I could stop taking insomnia medications. I could top, stop taking antidepressants. Uh, I was able to, you know, have a functional metabolism and, and uh, you know, um, uh, digestive system again, it was really remarkable. And just a few months after that experience, the opportunity arose for me to study Tibetan medicine at the Shangsheng Institute. They were starting a new four-year program. So I decided to drop out of Naropa and to join that program. Uh, it felt like the right thing to do. I felt like, you know, Tibetan medicine had always been something I was interested in. Uh, I remember I read Thomas Dunkenberger's book on Tibetan medicine back when I was like 16 years old. Uh, and, you know, I tried to figure out which, which Nyepa I was and, you know, tried to form my diet around it. Uh, so it was always sort of a thing that I was interested in, but I never had an opportunity to study it. And it was sort of unheard of at that point to have a full, you know, course of study offered to you. So I, I dropped out of Naropa, much to the chagrin of my parents, and I, I joined the Shangsheng Institute. Uh, that program ended up lasting a lot longer than four years. And uh, uh, around 2016, 2017, once I finished the, the sort of primary studies, I ended up going to Nepal for my medical internship. Uh, I was also studying with Dr. Nita through this time, and he's the one that sent me to Nepal. Uh, he wanted me to go there pardon me, for five months. Uh, so I did that. And I spent a, a lot of time in a number of clinics in Nepal and Kathmandu and also in the country. And that was sort of the, you know, the capstone for my, my primary education. Uh, so when I returned to the States, Dr. Nita asked me to start teaching and to start seeing patients, uh, which I started doing in Los Angeles and was actually, you know, doing quite well. I had a lot of patients coming in, uh, but i I never wanted to live in America. And uh, at this point in my life, I decided to act upon that and to leave. Uh, so I, I went to Europe and uh, I've basically been here since then. Uh, I ultimately met my husband and uh, got married and moved to the UK. Uh, so things have, you know, especially with COVID, things have taken a little bit of a, um, a break, I suppose, on the clinical side, uh, but my activities teaching and researching and also deepening my studies with my original medicine teacher uh, have continued uh, ongoing. So I'm still very much, you know, 
a practitioner, a, a student, a scholar, a teacher, all at once, I don't think it's possible to ever sort of, you know, reach the end point. I would never say that I'm, you know, a master of Tibetan medicine by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but that's part of the beauty of it. You know, the deeper you get into any of these traditions, the more you realize you just, you, the more you know you don't know. And uh, it all starts to open up. And that vastness is daunting and also incredibly comforting. Yeah. The training of a medical doctor is famously uh, rigorous and intense in its traditional context, beginning with usually the memorizing of the entire Gushi, the four volume uh, medical uh, encyclopedia, I suppose, or re reservoir of, of, of the, the main knowledge yeah. of the tradition. Um, and of course, as you've been, as you've mentioned, this uh, Tibetan medical tradition uh, has something to say about almost every aspect of uh, human health and well-being. What, what was that journey like for you, uh, entering s such a vast body of knowledge, which until really to this day, in some contexts anyway, is still transmitted in that classical style, as a yeah. sort of style that's, that's I think, foreign to uh, American and European, even these days, certainly it used to be the case, but uh, where, uh, yeah. educational institutions. And also among the range of areas that Tibetan medical uh, science, as you as you call it, the uh, Rigpa covers. Do you have any particular areas of specialism, preference, and interest uh, as a practitioner? Totally, yeah, definitely have that. I'll put a pin in that and come back to it in a second. Um, my my experience through the sort of you know educational process with Tibetan medicine was definitely non traditional for a number of reasons. Uh, it was traditional in that I had a full explanation of the entire Gyushi every single line word for word with root text and commentaries and personal experiences from my teachers. Uh, so in that sense, it was, it was traditional, but we weren't expected to memorize. Um, there are some misconceptions surrounding the memorization. 99% uh, of Tibetan medical, 99% of Tibetan medical students don't memorize the four tantras. They usually memorize the um, the Gyuchung Sum, the three small tantras. Uh, so the first, second, and fourth, which is much more reasonable. The Mengakyu is, profoundly difficult to memorize. It has a lot of information, uh, very technical, and it doesn't flow in quite the same sort of poetic way that a lot of the rest of the Gyushi does. Uh, so most people do the Gyuchung Sum. Uh, I haven't done that. I, my goal is to memorize the root tantra, uh, but I, I don't know that I'll ever have the, you know, sort of capacity to be able to memorize all three small tantras. Um, but it is really valuable. You know, there are, there are some Westerners that have done this. Uh, Dr. Tani Tidwell is one of them. She did this at Lhasa Mensikong and Dharamsala Mensikong. Uh, she studied it both. And uh, she was able to memorize the three short tantras, uh, which is incredibly remarkable. And this is something that, you know, we, we, we have a sort of uh, bias against memorization. We have this idea that rote memorization uh, is useless or that it's not very effective, uh, that you're not really learning the information, you're just memorizing it. But that, I think that is a bit of a misunderstanding and it's a bit uh, sort of unnecessarily, as you would say, it's an uncharitable sort of <laughs> read of the situation um, because it, we, you can't underestimate the value of having those books in your memory bank, in your hard drive of your brain that you can access at any moment. Uh, that's something that I don't have. I, I've tried to make up for it by creating databases and spreadsheets and you know, trying to memorize terminology and you know, basic information as much as humanly possible. 
but uh, it's a, a far cry from what you know Tawny Tidwell, for instance, is able to do because she has the whole thing logged there in her database that she can access at any moment. Uh, so it's quite profound the way that that's done. And it's also, you know, we think of it now as being an outlier, but traditionally it wasn't an outlier. Traditionally, this is how you learn. This is how you learn things, uh, especially texts, uh, especially if you're not necessarily literate. Uh, it's through memorization and repetition, and then the information really becomes ingrained. So I think there's great benefit in doing that. I hope that more people in the future are able to do that. Uh, but we do also have to accept that there's a big difference between Tibetan speakers memorizing a Tibetan text and non-Tibetan speakers memorizing a Tibetan text. Uh, it has a different sort of space in the brain that it sort of occupies in the way that we relate to it is slightly different. And you've got to learn Tibetan, of course. <laughs> yeah, you, you really need to learn Tibetan. Uh, and you need to you need to understand the things you're saying. But this also tracks for, you know, like sadhana practice. Uh, you know, it's great to connect with the original language that something is written in. But if you don't understand what you're saying, it's a very, very different thing that you're doing than what uh, sort of old school tantrikas were doing. So that always has to be taken into consideration. Um, I think Tibetan medical pedagogy needs some uh, ratification. I think it needs, uh, you know, to, it needs to evolve uh, in a certain sense to accommodate a lot of things, but in particular, a much more pervasive biomedical worldview. Uh, I think it needs to accommodate, you know, some modern discoveries in medical science. Uh, I, I strongly view myself as a traditional medicine practitioner. I really lean on the tradition part of that. And that isn't to say that my lineage is the correct lineages and the correct lineage and I am going to only use that forever. Um, that for me isn't, it's just not who I am. Rather, I think the idea of traditional medicine is honoring the thousands of years of lineage that we all have in our cultural and hereditary and, you know, sort of systemic, uh, you know, traditions that have been handed down for these thousands of years. We wouldn't be where we are today if we didn't have all of the works preceding us coming first. Uh, and even though in modern biomedicine, especially sort of the reductive, you know, pharmaceutical sort of biomedicine, um, this capitalist biomedicine, I suppose, you know, it's not about medical science, it's about capitalism being the problem, but that has sort of wiped everything else away and says that only this little bubble of stuff is real. Everyone before, you know, this, this century or, you know, maybe the 19th, 19th century, 18th century being really sort of, uh, you know, liberal with it was completely wrong. You know, Galenos was wrong, Galen was wrong, Hippocrates was wrong, uh, you know, Utok was wrong, you know, Bardvaja was wrong, you know, uh, Vagbata, all of every single medical expert before the you know 18th 19th century was fundamentally wrong and delusional uh, that's basically the view of sort of modern capitalist biomedicine but that's not what that's not what medical science is and that's not what scientists really believe uh, the ones that understand the historical developments uh, it's understood that this is an internet intercultural transcontinental sort of group human project of sharing information and observations about the nature of reality allowing those to intermix and to interact with one another to form ultimately the, the foundations for what we now have is modern science. Uh, so I view my role as a traditional medicine practitioner to be at the end of this string, you know, at the end of this very long line that goes all the way back, not only from my my spiritual lineage or my medical lineage, but also my, you know, my blood lineage, you know, the traditions that were practiced uh, more locally to us, you know, here in the UK or practiced in, in you know, in Europe and Scandinavia. Um, these are also sort of feed into, I think, the overall picture of uh, the evolution of science. 
as well as traditions that we don't always think about as being significant, you know, contributors to scientific development, uh, such as the many African traditions which interacted with the Egyptian sciences and which ultimately formed the basis of things like alchemy, uh, Kemet being Egypt, the Black Land, and then ultimately chemistry, which is named for Egypt. It's named for an African science by, by definition. Uh, but this is something that we don't always acknowledge when we think about tradition. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. It's one of, I think, the uh, qualities of the way you present this material that I, I find particularly enjoyable is your enthusiasm and interest in many different cultures. Uh, we were discussing before we were on air uh, your interest in uh, ancient Egyptian astrology and Western astrology and Chinese astrology, and indeed their medical traditions also. And your, your um, a view on the uh, communications between those cultures and the interconnectivity. Perhaps it's worth saying something about that before I ask you about your own, if you want, special interests yeah. within the within the Tibetan medical uh, framework. Yeah, I, you know, I'm. I'm really passionate about the the you know sort of intellectual brilliance of humans, um, and I say that in a, in what I hope to be a non-anthropocentric way because I am not I'm not a humanist. I don't think that humans are the center of everything. Uh, I even find the Buddhist sort of breakdown of humans and then animals and then hungry ghosts and so on to be a little bit reductive, uh, especially if humans equals Homo sapiens and nothing else. So I, I'm very much not sort of you know a humanist, but we have this incredible power to use imaginative abstract thought and to use complex language to communicate abstract thoughts to one another. And this is the basis of our ability to form sort of mythic frameworks and uh, also sciences to be able to contextualize our experience in this really rigorous way, record it, share it, pass it on, uh, debate it. You know, these are qualities that we have as homo sapiens at least that are really quite profound as hominids brought more broadly and maybe some other animals like, I don't know, dolphins. I, I don't know how, uh, we don't really know how sophisticated sophisticated uh, they are with communication. So um, I find that to be really intriguing and the realization especially that like Homo sapiens over the past 100,000 years have physically evolved almost not at all. Uh, the, you know, the humans that were 100,000 years ago, that existed 100,000 years ago, are just like you and me. They thought just like you and me. Um, they perceived their world, you know, in a different way based on their mythic sort of orientation. But their experience and the, the brilliance of their minds were no different than the brilliance of modern humans' minds. So for that reason, I think we have to consider the things that were said before and the things that were believed and thought and investigated and, and explored before, because those humans are also like us. They're, they're not different. We think of them as being these primitive cavemen that can't, you know, uh, you know, sort of perceive anything. And they just think that, you know, sun is God and they worship the sun. And, you know, it, it, we have a very reductive sort of view of, you know, primitive humans. Um, which is also then <laughs> imposed upon a lot of traditional societies that for the past couple hundred years we've perceived as being primitive for the purposes of justifying their colonization and destruction. More than the past couple hundred years, a long time we've been doing this. Uh, but I, I'm a strong believer in the, the brilliance of, of humanity and in the possibility that many humans across the planet in many different cultural contexts were able to come to scientific truths and facts. Uh, and the reality of humanity is that we have always been very multicultural. We've always been uh, quite uh, sort of cosmopolitan. Um, 
you know, maybe not always, but certainly after the sort of hunter-gatherer era, after the um, agricultural revolution, we we started being a lot more cosmopolitan. There was a lot more sharing of knowledge. Uh, the Silk Roads networks, my God, I mean, they're, they're so undervalued and underexplored. Uh, I think, especially in popular culture, uh, the, just the fact that we can speak about the West and the East with any degree of earnestness and sort of you know um, conviction is indicative of the fact that we don't understand how Eurasian cultures developed. Uh, they weren't, you know, Eastern, you know, sort of monolithic entity cultures and then Western culture. And then there was one long road that connected them with single people that would go all the way. That's not how it worked. It was a network of trade routes that connected everywhere from Venice to China uh, with varying degrees and many little offshoots and, and you know, uh, different localities that held different cultural traditions and where they mixed together and shared ideas and so on. So this is all really fascinating to me. And uh, what really piqued my interest was in Tibetan medicine. Um, the charter myth of Tibetan medicine is that 2,500 years ago, the Buddha taught a medical text called the Four Tantras. He taught this in this sort of semi-mythic land of Tanaduk, which was, you know, the medicine Buddha's sort of pure land. And he taught this to a number of disciples that came from many different traditions, including Buddhists and non-Buddhists, including gods and including rishis or sages. Uh, so he taught this, they all heard it in their own way and sort of codified it in their own traditions. And those existed for a while and turned into the many different medical traditions of the world. But there was one lineage that remained pure and was hidden in India for many years until um, until the Tibetan Empire, uh, the Tibetan Imperial era came around and a translator was sent to India to find this text, brought it back to Tibet, translated it, hid it, someone else found it later, gave it to someone else, gave it to someone else. And then that person is Yutokyun Tengumpo, who's the father of Tibetan medicine. This is the charter myth. So it's believed that this is an original teaching of the Buddha. It was originally present in Tibet in the imperial period. Um, and it's the, the you know, sort of OG medical uh, treatise. Historically, this is this is untenable, and it's not the way it happened. Um, this text, the, the Gyushi, really is Yutok's work. It's his magnum opus. Uh, it was a work that he cultivated through decades of research, uh, traveling all across the Himalayas, traveling to India, traveling to the Western lands. Uh, he did a lot of research and a lot of you know careful sort of investigation in order to produce his own medical synthesis, which is what we have in the Four Tantras. Um, it contains you know unmistakable elements of Indian Ayurveda, but it also has unmistakable elements of the Chinese uh, medical tradition and also unmistakable elements of the Greco-Arabic tradition. Uh, the section on urine analysis in particular, which um, Tibetan medicine acknowledges is connected to the Greek tradition, uh, is almost identical or at least very obviously uh, quite similar to the work of Ibn Sina, uh, who wrote the canon of medicine in the Arabic tradition. He was a great, uh, you know, one of the great thinkers um, during that sort of, you know, that development of science in the Arab world. And it seems that he and Yutok used the same source text for their information on urine analysis. And we don't know exactly what that was. We don't know what Yutok used as the sort of original source text that would have been from the Western world. Uh, but we know that there was uh, material there. And we know that he, you know, 
he did research this as well. So I think that Tibetan medicine, because even though it has the charter myth, it also presents itself as a, you know, a piece of everything. It acknowledges that there was a great medical conference in the imperial era where, you know, Song Tseng Gampo and then Tri Song Detsen called together these, you know, medical masters from all over the world. And these are also, you know, these are, are fancified, you know, these are, are not necessarily historical fact. Galenos and Bharadvaja and the Yellow Emperor did not go to Tibet during the imperial era. They weren't alive then. Uh, so that's it's it's you know fictitious but it's there for a reason it tells a true story and that true story is that tibet already being founded in the rigorous sort of scientific orientation of Buddhism, was able to take in these different medical traditions and analyze them with a good deal of scrutiny and sort of intellectual um, profundity and to be able to synthesize them into something that was in internally coherent, that worked, that was efficacious, and that also reflected the philosophical brilliance of the Buddhist tradition that they had inherited. So I, that's sort of, you know, um, I'm going to be doing a master's on this starting this fall, actually, because I this for me is one of the most interesting things about Tibetan medicine uh, is the way that it arose and the way that it connects with so many other traditions and the way that it really glorifies and almost sanctifies the act of intercultural, uh, you know, intertraditional um, communion and synthesis. Yeah, that's very interesting work indeed. And I look forward to perhaps having future episodes as your research progresses there uh, in your master's at Goldsmiths. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so what are your particular specialties and interests? And I would also like to ask you a bit about astrology. And then I'd like to come to your book that you're writing on unseen beings. So, it's so uh, fascinating. But let's let's finish off the uh, for now anyway, the, the medical side of things. What are your particular interests and specialisms, given how broad the tradition actually is? Well, this this may um, this may dovetail into the the book actually quite well because definitely the area of Tibetan medicine that I would find myself most academically interested in, um, and to a certain degree practically, but I'll you know with with a, a sort of asterisk um, would be provocation. So provocation disorders or dun in Tibetan dunne. This is uh, the Tibetan understanding of spirit-based illnesses, um, which is itself a reduction. And I will qualify that immediately by saying that it is uh, disorders that are caused by outer agents, uh, by agents that are, are outside of the body. Um, it's basically Tibetan medicine classifies uh, four sort of broad categories of disease. Um, or let's say there's four um, sort of uh, proximal conditions that can give rise to the to a disordered state. Uh, there's fundamental causes, which are more philosophical and psychological in orientation. It's based in Buddhist ideas about the three uh, fundamental kleshas, the afflictive mental states. Uh, but then the real conditions that give rise to disease, that cause you to become sick, are improper diet, improper behavior, uh, season or lifestyle, or sorry, season or time. So the seasons as they rotate or the 24 hour clock, um, you know, our relationship with the cycles of time around us. And the fourth element is provocation. That's the fourth condition that can give rise to, uh, to disease states. This provocation is described in a couple of ways. Um, we can think of them especially in two sort of broad categories. Uh, one is spirits which is, I think, a very reductive and difficult term. It's a, it's a problematic term, and I'll talk about why in a minute. Uh, and the other is uh, actually microorganisms, which are also understood in the Tibetan tradition, are also understood in early Buddhist teachings, even from the Pali Canon. Uh, we have examples of the Buddha talking about these sinbu uh, in Tibetan, which are uh, you know, 
obviously the poly is different, but these sinbu are these, you know, microscopic little organisms, these very small organisms. Um, there's many diseases in Tibetan medicine which are understood to be caused by microorganisms and others that are seen to be caused by these infectious agents, uh, which are otherwise identified as dun. Uh, they're identified as these sort of unseen provocative forces in the landscape. Uh, this has sometimes been misconstrued as being sort of uh, strictly Tibetan psychiatry, and there are psychiatric and psychological elements to provocation studies. There are certain disorders which primarily manifest in our sort of, you know, mental experience and our psychological continuum, but that's not what all of them are by any means. Many of the disorders that are presented in the Dune Soa, in the, the sort of chapter or the chapters on uh, provocation disorders, are very physiological. Um, there's a lot of sort of cutaneous infections, which is actually something that we also find in the Western traditions, uh, something that's believed to be caused by unseen beings connected with nature. Uh, there are, you know, um, you know, more sort of uh, things like strokes and epilepsy are sometimes falling into this category. Uh, but then you also have more mental and psychiatric disordered states, uh, things that we would identify with psychosis, but also things that we would identify probably more with demonic possession. Uh, this is actually something that specific little, you know, bit of provocation in the Tibetan tradition does come from India, uh, from the study of the, the Buddha, uh, or these, you know, sort of ghosts that cause different kinds of disorders that really migrated to Tibet through this um, Jungpo chapter in the Dune Soa. But there are other sections which are much less sort of straightforward. They don't seem to come directly from India. Uh, they seem to reflect either indigenous Tibetan ideas or something that really arose in Tibet as a part of this synthesis of many different cultural traditions. Uh, you can find certain elements, especially in you know provocation sort of diagnosis, where you can find elements of Chinese, uh, you know, and Sino-Tibetan sorts of um, divinatory devices. You can find Indian ideas, you can find especially sort of the Buddhist, uh, you know, cosmological paradigm as being an inf uh, something that informs this. So there's a lot going into it. I think it's one of the most fascinating elements of Tibetan medicine. Uh, and I think it's actually really, really relevant today in particular because of COVID-19. So according to Tibetan medicine, all infectious diseases, especially these sort of epidemic infections, which spread very easily and can cause quite a lot of uh, devastation, these are believed to be caused fundamentally by unseen beings in our atmosphere uh, or somewhere in our environment, oftentimes literally in the atmosphere above the earth. So there's conscious, sentient beings that are believed to inhabit all of these sorts of liminal spaces of the planet, at least, you know, maybe the, a much broader cosmos, but at least within our little, you know, ecosphere on the planet, um, our sort of energetic ecosystem, if you will, there's many different forms of conscious sentient life, according to Buddhism. Uh, this is also something that's, you know, seen in, in countless other traditions, often outside the purview of religion proper, and more something that's a part of the lived experience of the people in their own localities. Uh, very frequently, these ideas transcend boundaries between religion or culture, uh, nationality, language, and so on. They, and they move with tremendous ease because they're more in the sort of space of lived experience than they are in the space of dogma. Uh, so within Tibetan, Tibetan medicine, it's understood that these beings can become um, disturbed, they can become provoked, uh, they can be harmed through human activities. And these are usually things like 
you know, environmental pollution, uh, deforestation, cutting down trees, digging in the ground, mining for stone, uh, polluting water, polluting the air, uh, also committing social sort of taboos, social faux pas, um, doing something that somehow harms your society and your relationship with society. These are all considered to be conditioning factors for the arising of um, a provocation disorder, including infectious diseases. And this is actually quite in line with modern understandings of virology. Uh, you know, they, they might take out the piece about understanding different life forms to be sentient, but that's something that actually my, my book is going to uh, address quite full on. Uh, but they do address the fact that there's many different forms of, you know, life, biological sorts of phenomena, biological organisms, uh, which exist in the natural world. And we encounter more of those as humans when we disturb the natural world, if we clear cut forests, if we go into wild places where we have, for instance, bat colonies outside of Wuhan, then we might find ourselves in situations where we're exposed to you know, um, sort of unseen beings that can make us very sick and that we can then pass on to our brethren in our own communities and can ultimately impact really, you know, giant ranges of, of beings. Um, and that's exactly what's happened that, you know, these, these two stories uh, are just two different sort of paradigms for understanding a very similar phenomenon. And ultimately, it hinges upon our relationship with the natural world. Uh, I think a really key difference between sort of the modern sort of, you know, scientific overview of this and the Tibetan medical overview is that the modern scientific overview is dominated by facts and statistics and figures and a scientific de description of what a microorganism like, you know, the COVID-19 virus is. But we have no understanding of how to relate to it. There's no relational paradigm. There's no story surrounding it. Um, there's no real deep sort of immediate understanding of how things like this can arise in the first place. Um, whereas the Tibetan medical understanding immediately can contextualize it. You know, this is a disease that's connected in some way with some form of life that inhabits our environment, our ecosystem, that we've disturbed in some way, that we've provoked in some way. And because of our provocation as humans, that is how these diseases arise. That's how we then become um, exposed to something that we have no immunity to. So this is something that I'm, I'm really fascinated in, um, fascinated by. Uh, as far as clinical practice, you know, I do really, uh, I, 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 you know, um, I have a strong connection with, with mental health issues. Uh, and I'm also a strong believer in understanding these with a bit more nuance than either the modern biomedical uh, sort of, you know, um, pathologized paradigm. But then also, it's not that all mental illness is demonic possession. That's also entirely not the view of Tibetan medicine. Uh, it's a minority of mental health illnesses that would be caused by outer provocation. The vast majority of them are a part of our, you know, psychophysiological loop, the way that our bodies and minds are fundamentally entwined. And if we experience physiological unrest, that's usually going to manifest with some sort of psychological component and vice versa. So that explains a lot of mental health issues in addition to things like, you know, societal trauma, uh, you know, these deep sorts of uh, disordered states within our society, uh, where we then have experiences of really widespread disenfranchisement and marginalization, uh, systemic racism, systemic misogyny, and so on. And these also contribute to our experience of mental health 
issues and mental illness. But I think understanding the ecological component is also incredibly valuable. And the, in particular, the Tibetan sort of animistic view, uh, the Tibetan animistic worldview, the way that they contextualize it within the Tibetan Buddhist and Tibetan medical um, paradigms is, I think, found like phenomenally robust and sophisticated. I think it offers us a really rare opportunity to fully integrate traditional sciences with modern science in a way that can actually sort of birth a new philosophical paradigm that can hold all of these experiences and provide us with a sense of meaning. Yeah, that's very fascinating indeed to um, he, he discussed those things, and it should be mentioned that uh, in addition to completing your medical training, just to contextualize your opinion, you've also been authorized by uh, Dr. Nina Chanat Sang and uh, several others to teach various aspects of uh, Tibetan medicine and the associated Yutognintuk tradition, as well as various different church lineages. Uh, so you're speaking here not only as a practitioner, but also as someone who's authorized to teach aspects, uh, certain subjects. Of that of that broader tradition, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I I'm not a guru, and I don't I don't want to be a guru. Um, it's very much something that, uh, you know, part of the reason I wanted to go into medicine is because the role of the the doctor is similar but different. Uh, it's more personalized. It's more scientific, uh, you know, in a certain sense, uh, even in sort of a, just a traditional sense. And it allows you to go beyond certain boundaries and, uh, you know, sort of barriers that might otherwise be in the way as a, a guru. Uh, it also avoids all the problematic connotations of, you know, taking people's spiritual well-being into my own hands. Uh, but, you know, I really see my role as an educator and as, you know, a practitioner. But I think as I as I move on in my life, as I progress in my life and sort of evolve, uh, I'm, I'm much more drawn to research and to teaching than I am to something like clinical practice. Uh, and I really, I think we, we, need, we need people to try to contextualize where we're at and where we could go and to try to provide a somewhat broader picture of, you know, sort of all of the possibilities that are in front of us at the moment and also allow for the traditional sciences and, and these, you know, incredible ancient lineages to speak for themselves. Uh, you know, obviously to try not to put too much of myself into what is a Tibetan tradition, but then also to honor my own experience as a millennial in the 21st century on the verge of, you know, ecological collapse, uh, living as a queer man, and you know, living in a, a sort of societal experience that is uh, unique, and I think the syncretic sort of nature of that is also something that is valuable. So yeah, that's that's sort of my my approach moving forward, I suppose. But um, I was under the impression from your bio that you were authorized to teach medicine, astrology, and meditation, yeah. for instance, by Richard yeah. and he, he's a representative of of that tradition, trained in its, yeah. in its classical means. So. That what I'm tempted to do by bringing that up isn't to position you as a guru exactly. It's to contextualize the uh, recognition that representatives of the tradition have for your expertise about the tradition. Right, right. Yeah, and, and yeah, I I feel I'm incredibly grateful that Dr. Nita has um, sort of expressed that kind of confidence in in me. Um, and I think it has arisen out of just a lot of conversations, a lot of, you know, discussion. Uh, he's he's seen my my sort of progress and my trajectory over the years. Um, and I think we think very similarly. He's he's quite a 
you know, he, he can be quite a savant in a lot of ways. He's very, um, very unconventional and he's not afraid to be unconventional. And this is something that I really received from both of my main teachers, Dr. Nita and also Lama Sultram, uh, is that they, they've never been afraid to step outside of the box and to uh, present things in a new way based on their, their personal experience and their own research. Uh, and I think that this is ingrained into the Tibetan tradition, but especially the Tibetan medical tradition. You know, you can look at Yutok as being an example of this, but you can also look at Zurkar Lodjagelpo, you can look at, um, you know, uh, Desi Sangye Gyatso, uh, you can look at a lot of these great masters, even, you know, Kempo Churud Senam Rinpoche in the last century, uh, that expressed a certain degree of uh, pliability and flexibility in their minds, an ability to look at things in a new way and to be able to assert that as something that deserves attention. Uh, Yutok did that by framing his original work as the words of the Buddha, and it was effective and it allowed Tibetan medicine in this form to persist for, you know, 800 years. Uh, but, you know, we, we all have different approaches with it. My, my role, definitely, I, I, uh, there's things that I am very passionate about, and I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be able to teach on those. And uh, definitely, it's going to be a lifelong process of refining my own understanding and deepening my own understanding to then hopefully be able to share it in such a way that it can really speak to other people who maybe don't have that sort of, you know, obsession <laughs> with the Tibetan tradition. <laughs> Could you say a little about astrology and your interest in astrology, which is also quite deep and something I think you're, you're known for and those that are aware of your work. Could you talk a little bit about that and its uh, relevance to, uh, I suppose, the healing arts and sciences that you've uh, been a student of? Yeah, I mean, Tibetan... Tibetan medicine is still very much uh, a sister science to Tibetan astrology. They still have this sort of relationship in a traditional context. So if you go to Mensikong, uh, you can either take the Tibetan medicine route or you can take the, the Tibetan astrology route. Uh, each of them are four-year programs, five-year programs, actually. Um, very extensive. You have to memorize a bunch of stuff, learn a bunch of things. It's, it's very complex. Uh, but they tell you in Tibetan medicine school, and we were told in our class as well, that you know every, every Tibetan doctor has to at least be an amateur Tibetan astrologer and every astrologer has to at least be an amateur doctor. And this did stick with me. Um, I wasn't terribly interested in astrology when I started studying Tibetan medicine. Uh, it was a part of my sort of very early childhood interests, but it was something that I had long sort of dropped uh, for what I perceived to be sort of more respectable philosophical uh, and you know magical traditions with Tibetan Tantra. And I was a bit surprised to discover that astrology still had such a prominent place. Uh, but when we were taught astrology in school, we were taught elemental astrology, so part of the Nazi tradition, that's really Sino-Tibetan uh, elemental astrology. And I was interested in it. I was really interested in how it aligned with so many other elements of Tibetan Buddhist phenomenology. Uh, you know, you have the five elements present in medicine and in spirituality and Tantra and ritual arts, uh, everything in botany, uh, you know, everything is, is categorized within the context of the five elements. And to understand the sort of fundamental calculations, the mathematics behind the elements, which is what you get with elemental astrology, uh, that was really gripping and very fascinating, but I never saw myself doing it professionally. I never thought that this would be a significant part of my life. Uh, I was eventually led to Hellenistic astrology by a, a, a peer of mine, by one of my um, one of my classmates, and that really sort of changed my life. Hellenistic astrology being the um, the 
astrological tradition that emerged in Hellenistic Alexandria uh, around the turn of the, the first millennium. <clears throat> this is something that is very difficult to correctly identify. Uh, people would say it's Alexandria, it's Egypt, so isn't it Egyptian medicine? Yes, but at this point, Alexandria uh, and Egypt were very Hellenistic. They were uh, Greek speaking. It was very much a Hellenistic sort of environment. But the connections between all of these different traditions, especially ancient Egyptian and um, and other ancient African traditions interacting with what was at this point Babylonian astrology really helped to form something that was unbelievably sophisticated. And this is the basis of still what we use as modern astrology in the West. It's also one of the most important bases for Indian astrology, for Jyotish, uh, which includes some ancient Indian methods, some things that might have gone you know, specific or uh, directly from uh, ancient Babylonia to India, but then also pieces that traveled from the Hellenistic Alexandrian sort of Greek world to India. Uh, so for this reason, even Tibetan astrology, which is sort of, um, let's say, a third Chinese, a third Indian, and a third Tibetan, uh, you know, it's not as straightforward as that, but it contains pieces from all of those traditions, also contains elements of this Hellenistic tradition. So I really sort of went a bit more um, full throttle with the Hellenistic astrological studies because I found it to be so efficacious, and I still, many years after starting to do these, you know, charts and readings, for people, um, I've done hundreds of, of readings for folks, and I've never had a single experience uh, that has felt like, oh, this really wasn't correct. All of them have been a bit mind-bogglingly efficacious. So because of that, I've continued working with it and using it and teaching on it. Um, but, you know, it was never sort of the, the core of my, my path by any means. I think where it comes really... Um, quite in handy is one in understanding the macrocosm microcosm uh understanding the as above so below uh ideology in the hermetic tradition and also in the kala chakra you know as it is outside so it is inside and as it is inside so it is in the other uh both of these concepts arose actually in you know very similar sorts of periods um the hermetic idea would have been a bit older than the kala chakra tantra itself but you know we have similar ideas of this outer reflection of inner truths and astrology helps us to really observe that as something that's a bit more um, empirically observational. You know, you can't make up the, the calculations. People do and did. There were different approaches to different calculations. But when it comes to the objective locations of the planets and stars in relation to our place on the earth, um, it's, it's, it has an empirical sort of slant to it. Uh, what I do think is interesting is that, you know, we sometimes think that astrology and medicine, they've always been together and maybe only recently they started, you know, going their separate ways. And that is also a bit of a fallacy. Uh, the reality is that, you know, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, Alexandrian, uh, you know, era, and also in, um, in Europe for a long time, medicine and astrology were not so much sister sciences as like distant cousins, which were competing with each other for the inheritance of the, the patriarch or something. Um, they both wanted to be the people that you turn to if you're feeling ill, if something's going wrong, and if you need to figure out what's going on. Uh, so like Galenos, you know, Galen, uh, his own prognostication methods were really treated as an alternative to astrology or vice versa. Um, you might choose to go to a Galenic prognosticator or go to a classical astrologer 
astrologer to figure out what's wrong and what you need to do. So really they were in competition uh, in the classical era more than they were in communion. Um, but then there were some fake texts attributed to Hippocrates and contributed to Galen that basically created, retrofitted a system for medicine and astrology to work together. And that's how we ended up with a much more um, sort of integrated tradition in the West. Uh, so as far as my own personal sort of approach with it, you know, I think it also speaks to a, a deep philosophical understanding of the fallacy of free will um, and sort of the, the real orientation of our identities and our experiences as embodied beings in the cosmos. Uh, we don't have a lot of free will. We don't have free will. There's no such thing as free will in Buddhism. We have karma. Uh, we have karma from previous experiences which help to inform our current experiences and our current decisions. And it's very difficult to break out of that cycle. That's why we go around and around and around forever. Uh, that's, you know, beginningless time, cyclical birth, uh, cyclical, um, you know, uh, reality from beginningless time. To break free from that cycle is liberation. And it's very necessarily difficult. And and I think astrology really gives us a, a little picture of this. It shows us that actually from the moment of your birth, we can evaluate your karmic circumstances to determine what your experience is going to be like when you're 65 years old. Uh, because you can do that based on a single snapshot of the sky at the moment of birth indicates that your karma is more or less sort of predetermined by previous experiences. And you can look at it as a sort of map of what you're going to go through. Of course, you can attain liberation in that, you can attain enlightenment and you can transcend that process, but it requires almost going against the grain. Uh, it's literally, you know, the image of the Buddha watching the, you know, putting the bowl in the river and it goes upstream. You're literally going against the grain. You're reversing our basic uh, existential sort of orientation to be self-serving and to be egocentric. It's also going against a biological impetus, potentially an evolutionary impetus to just do the things that uh, our sort of instincts are telling us we should do. Uh, and instead it forces us to take a more altruistic point of view. It forces us to break free from the egocentricity and actually become uh, driven by compassion and love. And accessing that place of love, dropping down into the heart and sort of turning, almost like turning around um, our view, turning away from self-centeredness to, to other-centeredness, uh, that is the path of transcending our karma. You know, that really is the way out of the cyclical nature of things. So for me, astrology is a way of, you know, looking at our karma becoming really realistic about what we're what our circumstances are in this life and then finding you know expedient methods to be able to get out of that based on you know your sort of basic orientation hmm. that's very interesting indeed you were telling me that particularly during the lockdown where seeing per patients in person has been has been difficult you've been doing an enormous amount of astrological readings for people um and yeah. that's i suppose people can contact you for that sort of thing at shimala Yes, they can. I'm, I'm sort of taking a bit of a break from it. And I, there's a part of me that feels like maybe, um, you know, this is going to be the big push that then allows me to sort of put this part of my life to rest for a bit. I think especially as I transition into a bit more sort of full-time research and writing in particular, um, I want to do a little bit less of that because it's, it's a lot of work. You know, I spend two to three hours with a client and I spend an hour or two preparing before meeting with them. And it's really, it's, it's quite an investment emotionally and intellectually and even, you know, sort of energetically. So it's not something I'm going to do forever at all. Uh, but I've had enough experiences with it so far that have really um, convinced me that this is something that deserves a degree of attention. 
uh, and I want that to be sort of the way that it manifests for me. It's it's interesting because so many um, mysteries surrounding the development of medicine and the and the transmission of medical knowledge and even you know sort of uh, scientific knowledge over time has been surrounding the transmission of astrological knowledge. Uh, medicine and astrology travels quite broadly. You know, there's a reason that almost any any Eurasian culture, uh, you know, you'll you'll find or in a lot of Eurasian cultures, you'll find a seven day week, and that seven day week is broken into you know planetary rulerships uh, for each day. Those planetary rulerships are the same. In most cultures, Indian, uh, you know, Tibetan culture, Western culture, uh, you know, Western culture. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Sorry, uh, but, you know, you different European cultures. We all use basically the same framework, uh, and there's there's a reason for that. This information traveled everywhere, and uh, you know, it proved to be very efficacious for people, which is why folks uh, latched onto it. And there's unfortunately been you know centuries in Western scholarship, uh, global scholarship, where scholars and academics have been afraid of studying astrology. Uh, there's a fear of being, um, I don't remember who said this, but quote unquote from someone, um, you know, infused with the same lunacy that they study, uh, that's, or tinctured with the same lunacy that they study. So for a scholar to be really interested in the transmission of astrological knowledge over, over the centuries, uh, there's a fear that they might then be deemed to be a bit crazy because they believe in astrology. And for this reason, a lot of people have shied away from that sort of academic field. You find a lot more people who might study Hippocratic medicine or Galenic medicine or uh, and so on because it's a little more respectable even though modern modern biomedicine still looks at it and says oh it's all it's all a fallacy so it's a complex thing we have to really be conscientious of our own current cultural biases um, if we ever want to be able to look at traditional sciences with any degree of rigor and uh, you know rationality Rationality as a whole looks very different based on cultural context. What we in the 21st century consider to be rational is very different from what you know um, you took would have considered to be rational. So to look at something like you know a ritual used to dispel a loo provocation, which is causing some sort of infectious skin irritation on your body, it might seem irrational and crazy. But within the internal dynamism and sort of you know. Um, uh, logic of the system, it's entirely rational. It's not supernatural. It's not paranormal. It is natural and normal. It just has to be understood with a slightly different sort of paradigm. It's the same way that like today, you know, uh, if you see an, a shining orb in the sky, if you saw a glowing, you know, uh, maybe pale red orb floating in the air and, you know, maybe another one joins it and they, they come together and they have a little dance and then they disappear. What, what are most modern people going to say? Immediately, it's an extraterrestrial. It's a human-like being from another planet who has come here because we are so damn interesting as homo sapiens, and they're here to communicate with us, maybe to take over us, maybe to eat us, maybe to imprison us, but it's all about anthropomorphic beings interacting with homo sapiens. That's the only way that we can, we can ca uh, sort of ca um, categorize this in a relational, ra you know, rational narrative. But if you go back a few hundred years, it's very different. You might have had, uh, oh, well, it's actually, maybe it's ghosts or maybe it's witches that are summoning demons. Uh, if you go back a few more hundred years, maybe in like the Anglo-Saxon era in England, uh, and even a few centuries thereafter, it might've been elves. Uh, you know, if you go back to Brythonic era, you this, on this, and it might have been the fair folk. It might be the the hidden folk. Uh, you know, there's many different ways that we've related to unseen beings over time and unfamiliar life, uh, and. 
it, basically whether or not we consider it rational is just a function of which era we find ourselves in. I think it's very likely that a couple hundred years from now, uh, we'll look back on the people who thought that every light appearing in the sky is a planet and think that that's that that's you know obviously anthropocentric it's very sort of you know silly and just a part tiny little 21st century minds who couldn't grapple with the reality of what we were dealing with uh so it always shifts you know the, the point of what is rational is a, it's a constant moving target of course from an intellectual level it's a terribly fascinating subject and also in areas like astrology and in provocations and so on, we see these sorts of considerations having a practical, if you want, real life application. And that's a very interesting area of study. Have you yourself, uh, in terms now of personal experience, encountered what, uh, I suppose, some people might say UFOs, uh, some people might say uh, spirits or hidden folk and so on. I know that it's you're very fond of visiting places of significance in terms of these traditions, places that are said to be portals and so on, of which, of course, in England, there are many where you're living now. Have you yourself um, had firsthand experience of these sorts of, uh, by whatever definition, paranormal, or if you if you like, within maybe within talks view, normal uh, sorts of uh, experiences, encounters? It's... Uh... When I was very young, I had an experience, but I was very, very young. And the way it's presented in my mind is, is very sort of clear, which I think is a little bit abnormal for childhood experience. But it was something that I shared with my father immediately and asked him to try to help me figure out. Uh, and I remember being very earnest about it. And it was essentially an experience of, um, I used I grew up in New Hampshire and uh, we had a home that was backed up by a little forest and I I would always spend time in that forest that was you know I think a, a big part of my love for forests uh, which then was really stoked by Tolkien um, but I remember in that I climbed under you know some briars or something it was some sort of you know this bush and there was like a tunnel that emerged and I came through it and I came to this tiny little opening and it was uh, there was a fountain and it wasn't an ornate fountain it was basically just a rock above with some sort of a spout and there was water coming out of it and going into a basin below and i i can see it very clearly in my my mind's eye and it was a very viscerally true experience for me when i was a kid might have been six years old something around that so very young and i remember immediately going to my father explaining what i had found and asking him to go into the woods to help me find it and to to bring him back to it to let you know to show him what i had seen and i could never find it again and i remember going many times in my childhood back into the woods and trying to find you know what i went through to get to it and i could never do that i have no idea if that was a genuine lived experience or if it's a, a you know sort of perverted memory in my mind or something that my imagination cultivated i was very young uh, but i perceived it as being something that was, it provided this sort of incontrovertible proof that there was something beyond the, the sort of, you know, immediate scene reality. Um, I also had a number of like, you know, non-visual uh, apparitional sorts of experiences, both with my parents and our, our home that I grew up in, which was a new build. It wasn't an old home, but it was on an old land, uh, an old farmstead's uh, land. And um, yeah, very, very, 
minor other experiences, um, including attempting to summon a demon when I was about seven years old with my babysitter using an actual book that did have an invocation to various demons. I've tried so hard to find this book again and I've never been able to. Um, and it resulted in a big crash in the kitchen, which we could never identify the source of. So th this was, you know, this is sort of the extent in childhood. Do you recall which demon you attempted was to summon? It was, it was actually, it was a, it was a, like an invocation, if I remember correctly, of King Solomon, who was being treated as sort of like the king of demons in this particular text. And I remember very specifically, it was like a book where one page had like an invocation, the other one had a line drawing. And I, I was super into this and it was proper sort of, you know, like, um, uh, Judeo-Christian demons, uh, you know, various sort of classic uh, things that you'd find in more of a ritual magic sort of atmosphere. Um, and I was very into that, but super young. And I had this very strange experience. The babysitter never came back. I don't think I ever saw her again. Her name was Amanda. Uh, and she she never babysat for me again because she was really uh, put off by this, understandably so. Uh, but as an adult, I'd say that, you know, my, my experiences with sort of like hidden folk or fey folk and so on have been more in an imaginal and sort of spiritual space of practice. If I'm doing ch in a sort of wild environment, um, then within the space of my mind, then, you know, I, the, you know, I, I will have these sorts of things arise, but the line between imaginative sort of like, uh, contrivance and authentic seeing through to, you know, the, through the thin veil into the other realm is a little bit, uh, sketchy and I, I would never um, claim to be a sensitive sorts of sort of person in that way. I think I am in certain ways to certain you know sorts of like emotional and energetic uh, experiences, but I've never been someone who sees ghosts or hears ghosts or receives visions or receives you know downloads from another realm or from angels or from spirits or from gods and so on. I, I really I, I'm not that. And my work as an astrologer also I'm always very straightforward with people about I'm not psychic. I have I do not have psychic capacities or abilities. I cannot speak to your dead loved ones. I, I can't, I don't do any of that. Uh, all I can do is read uh, this chart based on traditional protocols and based on an understanding of the underlying archetypes. Uh, but that's, you know, I think something quite different. I've always tried, I always try, you know, as, as hard as I can to make some sort of contact. Uh, but also being cognizant of the fact that contact probably isn't going to look like, oh, and here's the, you know, here's a fairy coming into my point of view, and here's me having a conversation with him uh, or her. You know, it's probably a little bit different. And I think for me, um, it's just not, it, yeah, it, it hasn't been a prominent part of my, my experience. Have you ever attempted by means, sort of one of the traditional Buddhist means of contacting these sorts of realms, um, have you ever attempted to access them via states of high concentration, deep states of jhanic absorption, higher end of the elephant path and so on? Sometimes those are said to be, uh, in terms of Buddhist magic, if we can use that term, a term that Samban Sheikh recently, um, his recent book about. Um, yeah. uh, have you ever attempted to use high states of concentration? We also see, I think, techniques of that nature in texts such as the Vasudhi Maga and other texts of the, uh, along those lines. And I think also in certain Western occult traditions, the idea of achieving high states of concentration as a prerequisite, as opposed to, of course, simply fulfilling the ritual it needs to be um, uh, met with some sort of intent, uh, yeah. as the Western occultists might say, or some sort of samadhi as, as a Buddhist in a Buddhist context. Have you ever attempted to do that to get real deep in concentration and then seeing as it's something you've experimented with? 
Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, and it's resulted in, in meditative experiences, but you know, I, I've never made the jump from having an experience to then asserting that my experience must be a reflection of absolute sort of, you know, physical reality. Um, I always just sort of take it in, you know, I, I very much was always told by my meditation instructors never to become attached to the sort of niyams, like never to become attached to the meditative experiences, you know, to do the practice, to engage with it diligently, uh, but not to fall too far into sort of grasping at experiences. Um, and whether or not that's entirely the right approach, I, I don't really, I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, there's more that I could do if I sort of broke broke out of that mindset a little bit, uh, which might come off as being a bit sort of puritanical. Uh, but there are, you know, I, I think as a chippa, that's the primary sort of framework through which I engage with the so-called sort of unseen realm. Um, I try to do, you know, when I travel, I do it quite frequently. Uh, I try to go to natural places and sensitive places, uh, which is another topic in my book, this nyensa. Uh, and these are places where I definitely try to have some sort of, a, you know, make some sort of communion and some sort of an experience. Uh, but for me, because it's always been more about trying to apologize, trying to provide, um, you know, offerings, trying to demonstrate my own sort of good heart in approaching them, as opposed to trying to sort of like get information out of them or wisdom out of them. Uh, I think my relationship with it has always been a little bit different from what you would find in like the Western occult traditions. Uh, you know, there's even, in a, there's a modern movement of um, sort of speaking to what I was, I was just talking about with extraterrestrials, you know, really understanding that extraterrestrial experiences, UFO experiences are actually terrestrial. They take place usually within our atmosphere. Therefore they are necessarily of the earth and not something that we know is from outside of the earth. Um, and in order to communicate with them, it, it, you use exactly this method, you know, trying to attain sort of high states of consciousness through intense meditative absorption. Uh, obviously a bit more difficult for someone who has no background in shamatha or vipassana or, you know, mindfulness meditation of any form to try to just do it. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of merit in attempting that. Uh, but I definitely, I, I'm not someone who has ever had uh, a really stark sort of direct physical, uh, you know, visual experience uh, of seeing an unseen being. Another route widely uh, used in many cultures, I think, is the use of uh, psychoactive substances. Yeah. everything um now i notice in your bio you have plant spirit healing and so on there which to me always uh, brings to mind perhaps wrongly in this context um psychoactive substances um in often in a traditional context is i think what's implied there but perhaps not have you experimented with those sorts of psychoactive substances i'm thinking of course of psychoactive mushrooms um yeah. the, the ayahuasca and uh soma and s s such things yeah yeah, and I, I just listened to your talk with uh, with Ian Baker also, who's he was his heart of the world was also one of those books, one of those super formative books that made me just like balls to the walls about Triana. I was really, uh, it was incredibly inspiring, and I think that also awoke in me a sense of wanderlust that has manifested, you know, quite strongly in my adult life. I spent years just as a nomad, and uh, that was really, I think, partially based in in Ian's work, uh, and just the inspiration that he provided in that piece. So yeah, very honored to be appearing anywhere within the same sphere as Ian Baker. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, the plant spirit medicine that I mentioned in the bio is actually more related to an approach to plant spirit medicine in which you attempt 
not necessarily through psychoactive compounds to relate in some way with the spirit of a plant with sort of the fundamental conscious being that would be attached to it. And then using that relationship as the um, sort of medium through which you can heal others. Uh, this is something that I had some exposure to uh, in conjunction with five element acupuncture, even though I never, I was never an acupuncturist, uh, but five element uh, Chinese medicine. And that was imbued with uh, this uh, sort of plant spirit medical tradition when I was at Naropa. Um, I do, I, I mean, I have certainly had experiences with, uh, you know, entheogenic substances with, uh, you know, psychoactive substances, and I believe very strongly in their capacity to act as teachers. Uh, I think my, my relationship at this point in time, largely based on the research that I've done, but also largely based in personal experiences and, you know, certain sensibilities from, you know, the Tolkien uh, sorts of mythos and things like that, is that, you know, plants can be, the plants are sentient to some degree. I, I do believe that plants, especially trees, but plants of, of all kinds and likely all organic life has some degree of subjective awareness. It has some degree of a lived experience that it's going through. And I do think that some of the compounds that are produced by these different forms of life uh, can help us to potentially access certain, uh, certain dimensions of, of experience in which we can commune with nature in a more direct way. Uh, I think that there there's profound levels to this, obviously, where we can see the real nature of phenomena, partially by almost queering our experience of, of phenomena, of breaking free from the norm and seeing things in a, a distinctly different way. That's very profound and it can have really wide reaching uh, sort of existential effects. But then I think it has also very sort of mundane, uh, you know, rational applications, uh, things that you find, for instance, in South America, you know, where there's an understanding that taking ayahuasca was something that allowed you to then commune with nature, to be able to communicate with other plants that aren't part of the ayahuasca brew, to ask them, you know, what is it that you can do for us? How is it that we can relate with you in a healthy way that you can benefit us and, and vice versa? And I think that's a really profound level of, of this sort of work. Um, you know, a, a, a psychedelic compound found in a vine or in a mushroom or uh, you know what have you. This is this is giving you access to a different kind of teacher. And just like in the tantric tradition, you know your teacher is there to introduce you to things, to give you guidance, to answer questions, and then to set you on your way. And we don't have this as cleanly in the Tibetan tradition, where you have a little bit more of these like institutional structures that are formed around the teacher, and you basically are always in their purview. And then you have to be really careful about what you do and what you say and how you act. In, in Indian Tantra, non-Buddhist Indian Tantra, it's obviously a bit different. And as we could see also with Ian's talk um, and his own experience with the Kala Tantra is that there's much more of a sense of like initiation, get you to the experience level, break down some of your conditioning and give you the pieces, the tools to be able to do the work yourself. And then there you go, go out there. Um, I sometimes actually describe this as like the Gandalf effect, because if you look both in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf as a guide never leads the protagonist to the end. He, he, he doesn't do that. He guides them to a certain point. He takes Bilbo and the, the, um, the dwarves to Mirkwood, and then he leaves. He takes Frodo as far as Casa Doom, and then he falls, and he lets them do the rest of their work. He gives them the essential pieces. He gives them the information and the philosophical sort of overview and the ethic of it, but then he allows them to do their work independently. And I think that this is a bit closer to the real role of the guru. Uh, but this is also the role of the, the plant guru. This is also the role of the mushroom gurus. You know, you can't rely on them to give you liberation. 
any more than you can rely on your guru to give you liberation. They can't hold your hand and walk you through the whole process. They can provide you with the tools and information necessary to do it on your own, but then you need to sustain it through your own experience. So I, I really, you know, I consider a mushroom trip to be rather analogous to getting an empowerment, uh, you know, from a, a llama that you may never have a conversation with, you know, you may never uh, have a, a long term sort of relationship where they tell you what practices to do and so on. But you have this pointing out instruction, you have this guided meditation that's being guided by some sort of an intelligent force, uh, an intelligent form of conscious life that has something to share, has something to show you. And in doing that, you're able to uh, you know, potentially transcend your own experience. And at least it'll give you a new frame on reality. Mm. Amazing. Very interesting indeed. Okay. Tolkien. Tolkien. And then I think from there into your book about unseen beings that you're working on at this, at this moment, at the beginning of our discussion, you talked about the profound influence that reading Tolkien had on you at a particularly difficult time in your life. And it actually became very fundamental to your worldview. And several times then subsequently throughout our conversation, you've referred to Tolkien uh, in passing. And as you also mentioned, many people are aware, of course, of the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films and are aware of the books. Some have read them as a work of entertainment or fiction. Uh, but your relationship to them seems to go far deeper, which is something you're not, you're not alone in. I'm curious if you could expand on your appreciation of Tolkien who he was, why you're so impressed by him, what he was doing, and why that resonates so deeply uh, with you. And also, what might the casual reader of The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and so on, I think maybe Cimmerillion is, is not uh, casual, maybe, but um, what might they glean from the sort of perspective you might be able to provide? Yeah, so... Um... Tolkien, for those that, that don't sort of know uh, who he was, so he was uh, an English author, Oxford Don, Oxford scholar, uh, born in 1892, uh, and he was, he was born in South Africa, um, but his father died very early on in his life, and uh, he and his mother and brother ended up moving to England, which is where their families were, were all from. Um, and he, uh, he grew up, his mother died when he was fairly young as well, and he was put into sort of foster care uh, with a priest. And his mother was was very Catholic, uh, and that was she was a convert to Catholicism, so it was very personal and important to her, and also became very important to him. Um, but his experience, he was he was a genius, uh, almost certainly he was a savant. Um, you know, he uh, may have been on the spectrum uh, to a certain degree. At least he was on the sort of gifted spectrum, where he had a sort of uh, a, a mental capacity and intellectual power that was very unusual. Uh, you know, he's in line more with people like you know. Da Vinci, I think, uh, were these these really these genius minds uh, who had different interests, but but equal degrees of genius, I think. Um, and with Tolkien, he very early on had an affinity for language. So from the time he was like 15, 16 years old in his you know, high school you know, workbooks, uh, he, was, he would start cultivating these languages. And this went on throughout his entire life. He was always a sort of born linguist and he had a phenomenal understanding of linguistic development and how languages evolve. Uh, he was also a master of like Proto-Indo-European. Uh, so some of the more fundamental linguistic roots across Eurasia, uh, which are common to to, you know, Old Norse and also Sanskrit. Uh, so the thing, you know, the sort of fundamental source that connects many of these different linguistic traditions. 
um, as he sort of went through his life, he had a number of what seemed to be sort of mystical experiences. And uh, I think because of his Catholicism, he always couched these in very specific sorts of ways and tried to allow them to manifest in a purely sort of academic and artistic fashion, when in reality, what was going on beneath the surface was definitely something closer to what we would identify as like revelation. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition, there's this, this epic of Gesar of Ling, which is sort of the Tibetan myth. Uh, it's the Tibetan mythic epic. It's very, very long. There's countless chapters that are added constantly. And the people that carry on the tradition are known as revelatory bards or baptrum, who receive chapters and whole you know, vignettes from the story uh, through these sort of revelatory experiences. And it's very similar to what Tolkien experienced. Um, early on when he was in, in university, when he was studying at Oxford in his undergrad, he experienced a, a poem by um, uh, Kinewolf, which is from the Christ uh, books. It was the first, uh, the Christ one. And it had this line, it's, Eala earendil engle beorhast often, I wrote this down, Ofer Midengard Momum Sended, Monum Sended, which means Hail Earendil, brightest of angels, uh, sent to Middle Earth uh, for the sake of man, essentially. And this line blew open his reality. He heard this just in an undergraduate, uh, you know, old English class, and it really blew him open. And he heard this word Earendil in, in particular, and he felt like this was something that needed to be opened and unpacked, that it held a lot more beneath the surface. And by opening up that line, he created this story, uh, which is called Errantry. It was a poem, uh, which eventually became the story of Earendil the Mariner, which was a key uh, sort of story in the first age of Middle Earth uh, that's told in the Silmarillion and in some of his other uh, sort of more, you know, uh, esoteric pieces, I suppose. And this started really his Middle Earth uh, period. And throughout the entire remainder of his life, he was working on materials uh, that were, you know, really arising out of this paradigm. Uh, he only ever published The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and some other essays on an academic side. He never published his more deep uh, sort of fundamental mythology, but he talks about it a lot. And he's one of the few writers of his caliber where we have a vast amount of information and written record of his thought process during the time. He never threw away old drafts of his work. So his son was able to compile everything and piece together what he was thinking. And what he was doing was reassembling Anglo-Saxon mythology. Uh, this was really his goal. He identified, he, he was a, an Anglo-Saxon scholar. He was one of the most preeminent scholars of Old English of his era, uh, which is why he contributed to like the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, he created a Middle English Dictionary, which was very popular. Uh, he was a master of Old and Middle English. He was also very well versed in Brythonic languages like Welsh. Uh, he understood a bit of Finnish. He knew Old Norse. Uh, he spoke, you know, a slew of other languages and was incredibly well versed in this. But he also studied these mythic traditions. Uh, he studied, for instance, you know, the the prose and the poetic Edda. Uh, he, you know, he for especially he was really interested in um, in the prose Edda. There are chapters present which we don't have original uh, poetic Edda. Um, 
equivalence to. There's there's sections of the Poetic Edda which are, are completely missing. And what Tolkien did was he took the prose Edda and he retrofitted uh, original poetic verse and like original skaldic sort of uh, you know verse, and he created poetic Edda versions of what was then present in later uh, sort of you know early medieval works. Unbelievable. He did the same thing with like the Kalevala. He wrote um, you know the story of Kulervo uh, and adapted you know from the Finnish uh, Kalevala epic. Uh, he did this with with Beowulf. He has a you know did a translation of Beowulf and a commentary on it. He was incredibly well versed in these mythic traditions, but he also knew that a lot was missing. Uh, he knew that, for instance, Anglo-Saxon mythology was largely sort of uh, wiped away uh, during the Christianization, which is also unfortunately when the Anglo-Saxon culture cultivated writing. Uh, so we don't have or cultivated you know sort of the written record. So we don't have a lot of written records of Anglo-Saxon beliefs. We just know what was then sort of um, posthumously described by Christian Anglo-Saxons and by other visitors to Anglo-Saxon cultures, uh, but it doesn't give you the full story. Uh, we also, you know, in Britain, we have the Brythonic sorts of uh, uh, story of King Arthur and the Arthurian legends, which really describe the Brythonic resistance to Anglo-Saxon invasion. It doesn't represent the sort of story of the English people today. It shows the story of those before the Anglo-Saxons that tried to, you know, defend Britain against these invaders. Uh, from the Germanic, you know, sorts of uh, parts of the world. So Tolkien felt like, you know, there, we're really missing something. We're missing the Anglo-Saxon stories. We're missing the English myth uh, that's really, you know, before the Christianization, that was really in the landscape itself. So through his research, studying ancient Norse literature, studying Germanic literature, studying Brythonic literature, and studying um, you know, Norman literature and Anglo-Saxon mythology and so on, he was able to piece something together, which was then manifest in the Silmarillion and in his other works. Um, some people claim that he didn't succeed in, in writing the, the myth for England because he didn't place it so firmly in English soil. Uh, when you read Lord of the Rings, you would never know that this is supposed to be in the real earth and that the Shire is essentially Oxfordshire, uh, that this is really how it's placed. But if you dig a bit deeper to like the Book of Lost Tales, um, the, the Notion Club papers, which really deal with the topic of lucid dreaming uh, and dream travel and you know, inner interacting with you know, different places in time through dreams, uh, we can actually see a little bit more of the framework that he was actually living through, that he was experiencing. Um, it seems very clear that Tolkien had revelatory experiences. Uh, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. That was something that was entirely uncontrived. Uh, it came from an unconscious place while he was grading term papers, and he didn't know what it meant. Uh, he had never thought of the term hobbit before. He didn't know what it would mean, uh, and he had to investigate what it meant to have the mythology arise. Much more organic revelation, much more organic mythogenesis, as opposed to, you know, writing something that's really contrived. Um, and uh, uh, we can also see that probably he was a really prolific dreamer. Uh, it seems through his semi-autobiographical vignettes that he has in some of his works, like the Notion Club papers, uh, we can see that, you know, his characters have lucid dreaming experiences and they communicate with other beings in those spaces and receive uh, sort of mythic uh, elements of their own, their own world. Uh, it goes back in time as opposed to going to a different planet. Uh, it's really about being on this earth and coming to a deeper understanding of how traditional people, especially on this landmass for him, uh, viewed their relationship with the natural world. Uh, but as for like, you know, practicalities, 
we think of elves, like the tall elves are the Tolkien elves versus the, the real old elves are like little mini diminutive elves. And actually the old elves are the tall Tolkien elves. He revived an ancient tradition. He revived really a more traditional understanding of these different forms of unseen beings. Um, even something like an Ent. Ent is an old English term. This is something that you find in Anglo-Saxon mythology and you can also find correlates in, in uh, Norse mythology. Um, the idea of dwarves, the idea of um, yeah, you know, these, these talking trees in particular, not just the Ents, but the Huorns, that the trees are actually sentient and alive. Uh, these are all elements of, you know, really traditional Western Germanic, Norse, Anglo-Saxon, and so on traditions. Uh, they, they weren't strangers to this sort of animistic worldview. And what I find to be most sort of promising here is that if we can view it as something that's not just a fantasy story written by a creative author, and instead the creative sort of, you know, result of a scholar taking a deep dive into pre-Christian mythology in Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Brythonic, uh, and Norse cultures, and view it that way, then it takes on a bit more gravity. It's actually, it becomes one of the better examples of what we have today of what Anglo-Saxon mythology might've looked like. And therefore what the pre-Anglo-Saxon Brythonic mythologies might've incorporated and used, what we might you know, have had incorporated from the Norse traditions and so on. And the one last thing that I find to be really interesting about it is the fact that he also knew a lot about Sanskrit materials. Uh, he actually, um, the seven rivers of Assyrian are the seven rivers of the Rig Veda. They're actually translated into Elvish, but their etymology in Elvish is almost the exact same etymology as the seven rivers uh, of the, the Rig Veda in Sanskrit. We never hear this. You know, any, you know, Har Humphrey Carpenter's, you know, biographies of Tolkien, any of the scholastic works on Tolkien, very infrequently do you find a, a an understanding that he was actually much more intercultural than just being, you know, sort of white Europe. Uh, sometimes he's accused of having, the, his work is accused of having racist overtones because it was focused on white sort of Anglo-Saxon culture. Um, but really he, he doesn't stop there. He acknowledges the incredible, you know, interchange of information that went across ancient Eurasia. And he incorporated elements of the Mahabharata, of the Rig Veda, which we only find in Indian materials, but he obviously knew it and he he infused it into his tradition not to show like oh and then we'll put a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this but recognizing that probably even in the anglo-saxon era there were elements of indic mythology that had already made their way to great britain there might have been elements of indian thought that were already present there just like we know that indian thought probably influenced folks like pythagoras and as a result folks like hippocrates um, or plato uh, we can also see that potentially these ancient folk traditions uh, were also influenced in that way. Very interesting indeed. We may have to do a future episode one day just on yeah. Tolkien and I could sort of ask you all the different symbolisms and so on about that because it's really, okay. yeah, so amazing. Well, uh, thank you very much, Eric. Perhaps no, we'll okay. finish with a summary of your In the Works book yeah, on yeah. unseen beings. The book, it's a working title. I don't really know what I'm going to use for it because uh, part of the problem here is that it's a book about spirits. It's a book about our relationships with spirits over time. But our whole perception of spirits is so intensely shaded by ideas about ghosts, idea, you know, very anthropocentric ideas about ghosts, ideas about religious uh, sort of truths versus folk tales and fallacies, uh, that it's very difficult to use the term spirit and not have it come off incorrectly. Um, this book is essentially 
founded in an understanding that we're at a really important crossroads uh, as a species. We're on the verge of what may very well be the destruction of our own species and the destruction of many, many other species, which is already a, a process that is uh, well on its way. Um, the destruction of whole ecosystems, uh, you know, absolute climate catastrophes. Uh, it's, a, it's a scary place that we're in right now. And I think we have to ask the question of why we're in this place when we know more today and we have more access to information than any humans have ever had in history. We have access to virtually anything that you could ever want to know. More data, more scientific understanding, more mathematical analysis than we've ever had. And yet we can't motivate ourselves to actually uh, institute fundamental change. We can't motivate that change. I think the reason for that is that we haven't gotten to the level of myth. We haven't gotten down to that level of story of how we fit into the, the broader paradigm of our sort of you know, global ecology. Um, this was something that ancient peoples were very adept at. You know, they knew that if you want to bring people together, if you want to motivate behavior, uh, if you want to feel a sense of existential belonging, then you need to work on the level of story. You can't just work on the level of observation. And we even know this, you know, marketing folks know this, you know, when, whenever you're marketed, uh, you know, any sort of product or when someone is sending, a, a, you know, an appeal to fundraise for some sort of cause, they usually don't rely on facts and figures, they rely on stories. They Rely on, you know, if you see us on the TV, you know, an appeal to donate some money to, to starving children. The approach is to tell you the story of a starving child, give you their name and their story and their circumstances, show them to you, allow you to cultivate a kind of emotional relationship with them. That sets you within a sort of mythic orientation that they you are connected to them, you have a relationship to them, and therefore a responsibility to them. And uh, they've found through research that this is much more uh, efficacious in raising funds for charity than saying there are, you know, X number hundreds of thousands of homeless children that are, you know, on the streets right now. It's big, it's gripping, it's important, but it doesn't affect everyone in the same way. So I think that in order for us to really ratify the environmental movement, our approach to eco ecological um, I wouldn't say stewardship, ecological relationship is by making it a relational narrative. And it's my feeling that the best way that we can do that is through uh, a kind of sort of rational animism. Um, animism fundamentally being the decentralization of the conscious experience from just the homo sapien to many different forms of life. Identifying that not, I, that not only animals have personal inner lives, subjective experiences, and the same degree of conscious awareness that we have, but also plants potentially have this as well. And modern research on plant intelligence is actually incredibly remarkable. Uh, we can see that plants like trees can learn, they can memorize, information, they can activate some sort of a memory recall, um, they can communicate both through underground networks of mycelial networks, that's basically like a sort of underground internet, um, they can communicate through scent, uh, they have basically the ability to produce a, 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 an amazing number of uh, chemical compounds, which they can then release to call certain beings to them to take care of certain pests and so on. Um, these sorts of activities, you know, modern science 
sort of modern science of science, you know, popular science perceives this to be, it must just be instinct. It's like a, it's like a robot. It's programmed in a certain way. But we also know that plants can learn new information. We know that they can feel, we know that they can analyze the sensations that they're feeling to make decisions. Uh, we know that they can demonstrate certain degrees of selflessness and societal communal sort of well-being. Um, they can sacrifice themselves. You know, there, there's things that plants do that are, we know to be very sentient sorts of activities. We know what it's like to be on the inside of that experience, to be taking in tactile information and making decisions based on it. Uh, but for a very long time, we've, we've really just sort of implicitly believed that only homo sapiens can do this to a, a really, you know, um, a satisfactory degree. Then maybe some animals, then maybe all animals, or at least all vertebrates, and then maybe some plants, but we're, we're gradually increasing this to recognize at this point that even viruses and bacteria seem to manifest and demonstrate some degree of conscious awareness. Uh, and this is something that I think could really change our entire relationship uh, with reality and with the world itself. If saving the Amazon stops being about, well, if the Amazon goes away, then the Earth's lungs will make it so that we don't have enough oxygen as humans, and then we're going to suffer the consequences. That's not it. That's, that's actually not it. It's true. It's important. But that's not what the fundamental problem is. The fundamental problem is that we don't prioritize any form of life that isn't human. And we're willing to view every other form of life on the planet as a commodity, which can be exploited and used to our own ends. Mowing down the Amazon is much more than just the effect that it's going to have on humans down the road, or even indigenous people, humans that are inhabiting those places. We think, oh, we can just move them. You know, if you're on an island nation, you can just move to an inland place uh, where it's not going to be underwater and then problem solved. But we don't recognize the ecological, the ethical implications of destroying sentient lives, real beings that have some sort of an internal life and an awareness of what's happening to them. Uh, we we don't consider that. We don't consider those implications. And I think that that's part of the fundamental problem. So my book is essentially looking at animism as something that's very rational. Uh, you know, like I was talking about earlier with unseen beings being the agents for disease. If we can consider the fact that viruses might have some rudimentary form of conscious experience, then our relationship with them necessarily needs to be a bit different. Uh, instead of just, just focusing on, oh, well, we're going to get viruses, so we just need to attack them as they come, and instead realize that actually the viruses that impact us negatively, are, they come from natural wild places that have their own internal ecology, and disturbing them is going to make us really vulnerable to them because we're not a part of their ecosystem. Those viruses haven't allowed us into their family. Um, you know, they don't harm the bats they infect because the bats are a part of their ecosystem. Viruses, as a rule, do not destroy their own natural environments. They only destroy outer predatory threats that they perceive as being uh, a threat to their environment, a threat to their, their source of nourishment as well. So that's why we get these sorts of issues. And they come, I think, from a lack of a relational paradigm. So this book is really attempting to take specifically Tibetan animism, which doesn't imply nature worship. It doesn't imply a soul. It doesn't imply anything 
overtly special about these other forms of life, except the fact that they're just like us. And they're beings that we can be reborn into. They can be reborn in, into us. They're no, they're no different from us on a fundamental level. They're just other sentient beings with some good qualities, some bad qualities, who are generally motiva motivated by their own self-interest and who are fundamentally trying their best. So that's one of the sort of fundamental ethics of, of this work is trying to get people to perceive nature as alive. Uh, it's about the subjectification of nature, viewing nature as not just an archetype, not just a resource, but as a collection, a community, a vast global community of many different forms of life that need to maintain healthy relationships with one another. And in doing that, we can establish a mythic underpinning for environmental change and for really um, you know, taking it seriously and working towards uh, coming into healthy relationship with the planet. Um, there is also a level to this of the paranormal and supernatural, and I do talk about uh, this, this trajectory over time from having beings like elves and fairies and even jinn in the, the Arabic tradition, uh, which are these sort of morally ambiguous beings very similar to humans. They're sometimes good, sometimes bad. You wanna be on their good side, but you're not gonna worship them. They're not gonna save you from reality, but they are other beings that you can have relationships with and that you should have healthy relationships with. Uh, so that's what it originated with. And then we have the stratification and then we have the polar division between divine good and, and infernal evil. And then we have the witches and the subjectification or the, um, um, you know, the, um, oppression of the feminine and the feminine being this perverse form of dealing with nature and infernal hellish sorts of demons. And then we have, you know, the ghosts and then we have extraterrestrials. But all of these things share the common feature of it's how humans relate with life that isn't familiar. And that teaches us a lot about ourselves. It teaches us a lot about the mythic paradigms that we hold to be true. And it will have really vast ramifications for the future of our species and countless other species on this planet. Well, that sounds like a totally fascinating work. And Eric, where can people find out more about you and stay up to date uh, with your research and activities as they're developing? Um, they can go on Tremala.com, where I do have a mailing list, uh, which is very infrequently used. So you don't have to worry about being spammed. Um, I will just send you important things. Uh, I'm trying to get better about mailings, but I just haven't really been. Uh, otherwise, I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and people can find me on there. Uh, Eric Jompa on Instagram. I probably use that the most as far as social media is concerned. And then I'm not sure when the book will be published, but hopefully next year. And uh, yeah, there will be more stuff coming out um, I do also have an event coming up, a, a, a workshop, you know, a workshop, a, a retreat that I'll be teaching in August at Taramandala. Uh, there's information at Srimala.com, but it's sort of a deep dive into Soarikpa. Uh, and I'll also be talking a bit about provocation and unseen beings, the history of Tibetan medicine, all of these sorts of topics will be brought in. So if you want a good taste of it <laughs> and a nice little dunk uh, into the world of uh, Tibetan medicine and, and uh, Tibetan Buddhism, then that would be a good opportunity. Eric Jampa Anderson, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was great, uh, great chatting with you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.